So I've started posting some of the autumn onslaught of uh, classical uh, recordings. They're starting to come out now. Right. Uh, September and October seem to be the, the big months. And uh, there seems to be some kind of a, I don't want to say fad, but you know some kind of a thing with um, double albums, like double CD albums, like two hours right. of music or more than 90 minutes of music. And wow. uh, it's like every major artist is coming out with a double album. And I posted a bit, a few of them on Facebook. Listeners can look at our Facebook site. And uh, I posted about Yuja Wang and hmm. uh, Marc-Andre Amlan, you know, they're <laughs> huge albums right. that have come out. And there are more coming, so keep uh, following Facebook to know more about that. I don't know what we're going to do about that on the podcast, but we'll have to see. We just have to make it for two or something. I don't know if I can squeeze any more listening hours <laughs> a week. Yeah, I know. It's get, they're getting tighter now, too, because the summer's ending and we're going to be right. a little busy again. But uh, there is a great recording. I may have to squeeze this one in. There's a great recording of uh, Monteverdi's Vespers, a piece I really oh, love. Yeah. That even like um, Sergei Akunov, the composer who did the jazz album mm-hmm. that we talked about, he actually wrote it to us on Facebook saying it was really great. I'm like, oh man, now I got to hear this because right. it's a work that's close to my heart. So maybe we'll be doing that one day. <laughs> we'll have to see oh, in the I next like few that weeks. One too, yeah. Well, you're listening to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind as you just jumped right into the conversation this time. Yeah, because I'm too excited. <laughs> There's so much music. I'm excited. I need to do this full time, listeners. We we need to get us. <laughs> you need to make this a job <laughs> for us. Fun. We need to be paid so we can do this all the time. I'm your co-host, Russ, and very excited over there is... Is Mike. Yeah, I almost forgot my name because I'm just so excited about what I'm hearing. <laughs> Yeah. And we are here on episode 131, bringing, as always, the best in new classical and jazz releases, three of each. And for all the music that we're going to talk about later on in the episode, look down in the description. You'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link for the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place, and that's on Deezer. CD quality streaming from France. And if you don't uh, see the full description or the recording list and links are not easily accessible on whatever application or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's clear and easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a music-loving friend. Check these guys out. They've got the best new music recommendations. Take a minute, give us a ranking or write a short review that helps us get listed in the recommendations on different podcast hosting places. And you can also, as Mike mentioned before, come over to our Facebook page, get extra info and more new releases throughout the week. Mike put up a bunch of things there. I put up a at least a half dozen of jazz releases. Russ puts up a load of jazz stuff. I'm, I I personally am overwhelmed by it. <laughs> uh, when am I going to listen to these? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I try. Anyway. I think a lot of those are going to make it into episodes anyway, because there's a okay. lot of good stuff that came up. See, I'm not sure about the double albums. I've already kind of decided that I'm going to... I'm going to say this. I'm going to skip the Marc-Andre Amelon, because it's a double album, and it's the complete foray nocturnes and barker mm. rolls, and there are lots of them. Right. And they're not, they're kind of the same sort of mood, or especially mm. bark rolls, they're the same rhythm. They, a bark right. roll has to be 6 8. And I think that's a little too much of a good thing for a podcast to yeah. turn around right away, but <laughs> right, it right. would be a great album to hear. Just listen to a mm. few of them uh, at a time. I mean, I certainly intend on doing that. So, okay. And the Yuja Wang is Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto. She does all four of them. And for that, I don't know, we might do it, but I'm kind of, mm. we're so enamored of the. Trifanov ones that I'm kind of like, I don't know. And we did mm. Yu Zhuang earlier in the year with yeah. that uh, Abrams uh, piano concerto, which was really right. awesome and will probably be on my list of best recordings of the year at the end oh. of the year. Yeah. 
because it was really great. It was really exciting, really. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, always come over and check our Facebook page. You can join there and uh, see some interaction with the artists that we talk about. Leave a comment. See our handsome faces. And yeah. otherwise, if you'd like to contact us directly, you can get in touch by email as well with any comments or questions. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Special thanks this week to Ted Piltzecker. If you haven't ah. heard his album that we talked about last week, Vibes on a Breath. It's a really great vibraphone album with wonderful arrangements. And so he shared our episode for us on a whole bunch of different Facebook groups. He's in, you know, vibes and other Yeah, and we seem to have gotten things. a lot more um, downloads too as a result of that. So that was really right. great, you know. So thanks for that, Ted. And uh, also don't forget to check out from the episode before that we did a pre-release little review of Terrell Stafford's Between Two Worlds, which was released on the 8th. So I've got the streaming links updated in the episode. If you haven't heard that, it's a great new recording from a fine trumpeter. And uh, now you can hear it as well. Well, a little bit of sad news this week before we keep rolling on. We've got uh, a couple deaths to report. So I guess I'll have to roll out the theme. First of all, bassist Richard Davis, who played jazz, classical, and even pop music, passed away September 6th at the age of 93. He was born in Chicago. Some jazz fans will know his name from his work with Eric Dolphy, Jackie Bayard, Andrew Hill, Elvin Jones, Cal Jader. He was a member of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra, and he also played with Don Sebesky, Oliver Nelson, Joe Henderson, Miles Davis. In the 70s, he also did some work with uh, rock musicians. He was on Laura Nero's Smile album, Van Morrison's Astro Weeks, and Bruce Springsteen's uh, Greetings from Asbury Park. And he also played classical music. He worked under conductors Igor Stravinsky, Leonard Bernstein, Leopold Stokowski, and Gunther Schuller. So how's wow. that for a well-rounded career? Yeah, boy. And in addition to that, he was a music professor at the University of wisconsin Madison, where he stayed for 39 years. Wow. So, was he retired at the time he, of his I death, or was so. he still working? Yeah. Anyway, that's a really wide-ranging career over lots of styles of music. So rest right. in peace, Richard Davis. And on a more personal note, I've got a belated death I'd just like to mention, because this was someone who had a big influence on me, and I just found out about his passing. That's trumpeter Howie Shear. Uh, he died back on June 27th, but I didn't find out about it until today. I came to know him from the time I spent at uh, State University of New York in Fredonia, of which he was a graduate from back in the 1970s. He went on to study at the Eastman School of Music. He got a master's degree there, and he also got a doctor of musical arts from the University of Southern California. And he played with the Woody Herman Band as lead trumpet and featured soloist back in around 1980. Then he moved out to Los Angeles and worked as a studio musician and jazz soloist. And he also was the lead trumpeter and arranger on the Joan Rivers Late Night Show back when that was on. Remember when they had all those late night shows competing? They, they, they still do, apparently. But uh... Yeah, Howie would come back when he would take time off and spend time in Fredonia. And so I got to spend some time with him there and take a few lessons from him and hang out. I learned more from his sound on trumpet. He had the most electrifying sound I ever heard on trumpet. It would fill a room. 
And uh, it wasn't so much what he told me, it was just when he would demonstrate something, I would say, that's how it was done. Mm-hmm. And I did contact him a couple of times by email over the years because he had released a recording and wrote a book. I just hadn't been in touch in a while. And I wanted to see if he had you know, recorded anything new. So I was looking it up and I saw that he had passed away. So rest in peace, Howie Shear, one of the best trumpet players. And if you've never heard of him, you say, who is this guy? Check out, you can find uh, his main jazz recording, Bopliography. And uh, it's a good title. Good title, too. Yeah, sad news. Sometimes (laughs) over here in Japan, we get out of the loop of things. Yeah, speaking of getting out of the loop of things, you have the, uh, you were talking about those late night shows, and we think they're still on, at least until the uh, writer's strike started, and now there's nothing on, from what I hear. Oh, I wouldn't even (laughs) notice yet. Yeah, there's still jazz bands on, like some of those shows, which is pretty cool. Also, we want to remind everyone to check out the Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard podcast, and we'll be hopefully doing our uh, guest episode with them this week and get it out later in the month. But if you haven't checked them out, that's AJ and Johnny, who look at several versions of the Same Jazz Standard each episode. They play snippets from each version, discuss the history of the original and the different versions, what they like and don't like. There's a link to their podcast at the bottom of the description. If you stick around to the end of the episode, you can check out their little promo, and hopefully you'll hear them on our show in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. And we started using sound samples oh, of the songs. I'm getting in on the action so Mike's going to get in on that this yeah. week. We're the new improved adult music podcast right. now. You know, people have been asking us all the time, why don't you play the music? Well, there were various reasons for that. Yeah. And but we now solved we're doing one it. of them, although we're not really sure if we've solved it. Yeah, let's find <laughs> we're out. Gonna find, we're testing it out. So far, so good. From last week, right. uh, all yeah. the jazz samples were passed, so it was no problem. Yeah. So for anyone who cares out there in the great publishing and uh, copyright domain, this is our fair use disclaimer. The music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support the artists. Okay, there you go. All right, so before all that, you were talking about uh, death. Death, yes. <laughs> I guess we got to get back to this um, oh, yeah. this theme because we also have um, our first classical album is uh, by a pianist who died about a year ago. This is Lars Folkt on piano, and he died on September 5th, 2022. So this is, it's about the, um, the first anniversary of his death just passed. And we have here his, I guess, what's going to be his last... Uh, studio recording it's not him solo it's uh, mozart piano concertos number nine in e-flat major k271 the jeune homme concerto because he was a young man i guess when he wrote it i think mm. he was 20 <laughs> although he died at what 39 yeah, so, i mean he was he never really got old and number 24 in c minor k491 i want to say something about mozart mozart died young and you wonder oh what if he had lived you know but right. In, in, with someone like Mozart or Schubert, they left behind so much music, despite having lived yeah. very short lives, that you don't, I guess you wonder what could have been, but you don't really miss so much because there's just so much to mm. hear anyway. But in the case of our next composer, Carl Nielsen, we're going to have something to say about that. Oh, right. Yeah, so anyway, but let's just uh, talk about Mozart first, the Lars Folk recording. He recorded this with the Orchestre de Chambre de Paris, and this is on the Ondine label from Finland. He died, as I said, on September 5th, 2022, did Lars Folkt. In April 2021, so it was a year before his death, a year and a few months, what is that, five months? Okay. Aware of the his diagnosis, because he had cancer, 
and he was in the middle of his treatment sessions. The artist um, had an urgent desire to record a Mozart piano concerto album together with this orchestra, the Orchestra de Chambre de Paris. Hmm. And he believed that uh, performing these fantastic works that he had so much admired would also be the best medicine for his condition. And, uh, well, Mozart would be what I would choose, too, I'm sure. I'll, I'll go out there and just tell you, Mozart is my favorite composer. Mozart and Brahms both, but hmm. it's you know, Mozart just for his um, cheerfulness when he decides to be cheerful. He could be dark, too. Okay, so in this recording, um, Vogt coupled the early and exuberant Piano Concerto Number no. 9 together with the melancholic and nostalgic Piano Concerto Number no. 24, mm. uh, which is considered by many as Mozart's greatest Piano Concerto. Well, it's got a lot of emotion to it, so when we think of greatness, uh, people are often talking about like what's in it. Uh, it's not my favorite one, but I like it a lot. Mm. <laughs> he was uh, aware of the possibility that he would not survive to hear the final edits, and uh, he didn't, actually, I don't think. So he enlisted his friend Paul Lewis, the British pianist Paul Lewis, to be his second pair of ears and to approve the recording for release, which I'm guessing Paul Lewis okay. did. The notes don't um, talk about that. And let me tell you, we talked about the um, Schubert piano trios a little earlier, not earlier in the year, but a few months ago, maybe a month or two ago. Right. Uh, by um, Christian Tetzlaff, Lars Vogt, and Tanya Tetzlaff. And I thought, eh, these are okay. The rhythms aren't... It was great playing, but I didn't always like the uh, tempo choices in that. Well, no such problem here. This is really a fantastic recording from beginning to end, and I encourage everyone to hear it. We'll start with the more cheerful piano concerto number nine in E-flat major, the Junum, K271. It starts out with an allegro, the first thing you hear is the orchestra, and it has a nice, lively feel to it. Now, I don't have the uh, CD of this release, so I'm not sure if the orchestra is sort of playing on their own. It is a chamber orchestra, so they could be, or if Folkt is conducting them. I'm going to guess that Folkt isn't conducting. I'm, gu I'm guessing that the orchestra is playing mm -hmm. on its own like a chamber group with no conductor. Anyway, they have a nice, lively feel to their entry. Uh, the orchestra part flows really well. And I'm wondering if they're playing, yeah, like I said, without a conductor. They get good warmth in the second theme. And, uh, in fact, this is a really well-recorded performance on top of being a really good performance as well. The discord just before the cadence, after the 1 minute and 30 second mark, is given a lot of weight and sustain. Uh, you can't miss it when you hear it. Folks playing is crystalline and flowing. He sounds fantastic here, like he's really inspired. And I like the discreet to no pedaling on the left hand at the two-minute mark. The bass figures are all very clear, but not always the case, which is not always the case in this music. The bass is also carefully managed by Folkt, beautifully balanced. At 5.57, we get the theme again, and we're in the recapitulation. At 8.25, that dissonance is leaned on again, and at 8.54, we get the cadenza, which Folkt gives a more showy, exciting profile to. It's a beautifully shaped and performed movement, and I think we should actually sample something here. And I want you to listen to the uh, the bass, the bass and the piano, because it's so subtle and beautiful, and I was just really just knocked out by this. Dun, dun, dun. Mm, very clear. Mm. 
Yeah, I'd really like to go on, but I think I should <laughs> stop there because <laughs> we will be here like listening to this all day. So yeah, the, the, you you heard the the beautiful filigree work in the right hand, but um, the bass stands out too. A lot of people I've taught music classes like how to listen to music, uh, classical music, and a lot of people don't hear the bass. We got to start listening to the bass; it's really important. Mm-hmm. And in a recording like this, he's definitely not ignoring it. It's really beautiful throughout. Okay, second movement, Andantino. The strings give this uh, throbbing opening a rather dark, sinister feel. Reeds get appealingly harsh on uh, harmonically discordant notes at around the 45-second mark. Uh, The piano comes in at 106, sounding like a fairy tale character lost in the woods, with its accompaniment remaining dark and somber. I like the lightness in folks' trills after 145. They get heavier after 310. Actually, you know what? Let's listen to some of those trills. Gorgeous playing. I really wanted to get that um, that solo bit in. The middle of the movement gets into some dark harmony, and in fact, winds its way through a lot of harmonic thickets. At 744, there's a full cadence, and we hear the opening again, uh, this time with heavy, disturbing brass harmony. Now, heavy for Mozart. Okay, it's not going <laughs> to crush your ears or anything like that. This is the classical era. Things were a lot lighter. This is, uh, by the way, one thing that I often say to students, especially young students of classical music, where they'll often say, oh, this is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is such a nice piece. I feel like I should be drinking tea. Well, that would have been (laughs) bone-crushing music at the time. (laughs) We really need to put ourselves in the harmonic language of the time to really get the impact. It takes a little bit of understanding in order to do that. So it all sounds pleasant to our ears because we've been corrupted by, oh, traffic sounds and um, and much worse. (laughs) Airplanes, television, television. <laughs> EDM, <laughs> yeah, or heavy metal, whatever. Okay, we we can't heavy heavy metal. We we've already praised heavy metal, but it's loud. You can't deny that. So yeah, we don't hear those works the same way that audiences of the time did. And some of them would have a lot of these works would have sounded really harsh to their ears, and including some Mozart too. There are bits of Mozart that really would have like the beginning of Don Giovanni. The very first thing mm. you hear in that opera would have just stunned. Uh, the audience in the beginning of that overture. So you might want to sample that to hear what I mean. At 8 minutes and 15 seconds, a cadence remains open and the piano takes an understated cadenza. Again, beautiful sound. The bass end of the piano registers perfectly. The engineer gets full marks on this recording. There's a lovely trill out of the cadenza at 10.23. I'm not going to play all the trills. They're so good. Just listen to this whole movement. You know, there's, there's so many wonderful things in it. But the orchestra doesn't come in until more piano wandering is done. There's a nice effect by Mozart there. And the orchestra comes in for the last emphatic chords at the end. Then we get the uh, rondo, the third movement, which is marked presto. The piano gets the entire first theme. I'm not going to do every track, but let's listen to this. (laughs) 
Look at all those, um... False cadences. Yeah. Yeah. I should have pointed them out when we heard them, but, you know, I was thinking, oh, should I talk or not? <laughs> if you don't like me talking over the music, just go stream the recording. We, we, we left you the links. Anyway, it's very free-spirited playing, Volk-keeping uh, the contours, even as you heard. The orchestra repeat of it flows well, too. Folk is in really great form here. With even technique on the fleet-sounding lines, he gets a lot of playing time by himself in this movement, too. Uh, in the second minute, it sounds like he's already in a cadenza, as he gives himself a lot of dramatic pauses. Then comes back to the rondo theme right at the three-minute mark. At 4.20, Folk starts what sounds like another cadenza, and here he plays with a rather slow, quiet tempo, yet the rhythm has a lift to it. It's really interesting. I thought the sensitive accompaniment during the elegant segment by the orchestra just at and after the sixth minute was very special. The movement is darkened quite a lot here. At 7.53, we're back at full speed to the rondo theme. After the ninth minute, I really love the separation of voices in the piano. The melody and bass are clearly discernible. This entire movement, and indeed the entire concerto, is eventful. And indeed, Folk and the Orchestra de Chambre de Paris do a lot to make it sound that way. This is a must-hear performance. I really liked it a lot. We still have more to come. The Piano Concerto Number 24 in C minor. This opens Allegro, and the opening is played with a creeping quality, followed by Mozart's minor key sort of thunder music, like that you hear at the beginning of Don Giovanni. It sounds very theatrical, like theatrical thunder. The pace is a touch on the slow side, not rushing, adding to the ominous quality. It doesn't sound in a hurry to get where it's going. I'm also noticing that sudden key changes and changes of orchestration register fully due to the tempo. The piano finally enters at uh, 218 with a lot of dramatic tension and long pauses. This is a solid interpretation of the line. Figuration in the following material is, as in the previous concerto, fluid and smooth. At 635, the piano gets some brief solo space going into the minor key and quieting down. At 816, we hear the return of the theme, marking the recapitulation, but it's not straightforward, and it suddenly goes quiet for the piano to drift through several keys. At 856, we're hearing the second theme. The orchestral playing is very atmospheric. I like the light throbbing sound they get after 920. At 10.45, the opening theme is heard again, uh, leading to a highly active cadenza at the 11-minute mark. Folk is busy in this, showing his smooth technique, then quieting down for some sensitive playing of segments of one of the themes. There's no big crashing chord at the end. The movement ends quietly. Then we get to the second movement, Larghetto. The piano plays the opening theme alone with a light, song-like tone. The orchestra finishes the theme, and the piano continues on, this time accompanied by strings. Beautiful tone and sound quality from Folk here, as through the entire album. Individual instruments from the orchestra come up beautifully, like the bassoon at 1.30, and all winds at the two-minute mark. I especially liked Folk and the orchestra's playing and clarity in the fourth minute, just before Folk comes back with the theme at 4.42. From 5.30 on, the orchestral part is beautifully heard, with a bassoon keeping time on each downbeat. I guess I should give like a sample of this piece. So let's go for the uh, Volk and the orchestra's playing in the fourth minute.
Yeah, great clarity in the orchestra as well. The third movement, Allegretto, starts with a touch of a sinister quality again, with its light, wispy touch to the orchestra. The piano finally comes in at around the 58 second mark, and this is a set of variations. The orchestra takes the one after the piano's entry to itself, then they both play the piano with figuration. There's a louder, swaggering orchestral variation just before the three minute mark, a feeling the piano takes up for its brief solo chance at the material. The winds are heard to good effect from 3.30, with the piano coming in afterwards. I thought the solo piano variation at 4.30 was incredibly detailed, while remaining highly sensitive. Great playing here. The winds have a variation at 5 minutes and 45 seconds, with the piano answering in the same style. Strings and piano take a turn in the sixth minute, with brief wind statements between phrases. At 7 minutes and 18 seconds, the variations end on an open cadence, and the piano gets a cadenza, which is taken in accented triplets. It's got a big orchestral ending. Okay, let's hear that uh, solo piano variation at 4 minutes and 30 seconds. This will be the last we'll hear of Lars Vogt, probably on this podcast. we take you away from that (laughs) anyway this is a record that mozart lovers will have to hear and i imagine you already want to hear more i certainly want to go back and listen to it now it's played for drama and i'm going to say that again for the next recording we talk about as well but it's no less musical for that the emotions in these works register strongly the recording is beautifully clear to the point where folks very sensitive left hand playing registers cleanly this is among the best playing I've heard from Vogt, in fact, and I'm rather a fan, so I've heard a lot of it. During the recording sessions, Lars Vogt reflected that the idea that despite everything, things aren't so horrible in this world always plays a role in Mozart. And I would sort of agree with that. You do come away from his music feeling that, yeah, things aren't as bad as you thought they were. And that's a magic quality because you can just go outside and see how horrible <laughs> they are again. But um, Vogt, as I said earlier, believed that this was the best medicine for his condition. I'm sure at the time it was, just judging by his playing. Uh, I can say with certainty that Mozart is always the best medicine for us if we can hear that quality in Mozart's music, that things aren't as bad as you think. You've already improved the quality of your life just by that. Highly recommended album. I would hear it in its entirety. Very graceful and smooth piano performances here. The piano tone has this really wonderful glimmer to it. It sounds almost magical. The balance between the piano and orchestra is almost perfect, and the orchestra is very sensitive to dynamics, and so it kind of pulls you in with the very soft sections, and everything just seems wonderfully balanced. And of course, the piano playing has wonderful phrasing and a flow that really just draws out all the charm of the Mozart. So I really enjoyed this at all. I thought it was really beautiful. 
Yeah, I mean, I could have just kept sampling forever, <laughs> but uh, had to had to restrain myself. All right, let's go on to our next um, classical recording. This is um, one of my favorite composers, really one of our favorite yeah, composers. Favorite yeah, the Danish composer Carl Nielsen, who lived um, at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, he was a late 19th, early 20th century composer with most of his uh, great works coming in the 20th century, the 1900s. These are all of his... Um, Concertos for a solo instrument and orchestra by um, the Danish National Symphony Orchestra conducted by Fabio Luizzi. And this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. Now, earlier this year, or really at the end of last year, this um, ensemble under Luizzi's baton put out the six um, Nielsen symphonies. And I didn't feature them because of the way they were released, really. It was a little confusing because they released all three recordings digitally only, you know, via streaming uh, and individually too. So they came out within a month of each other. Mm. And then in April, they put out the CD set of all the, all six symphonies together in a box. And by then I figured out we couldn't, (laughs) it was already too late to really do this. And in this case, they seem to be doing more or less the same thing. The concertos, there are only three concertos um, that um, Nielsen wrote, more on that later. Again, they've released this digitally only at first, so we're going to have to wait for a CD, and this will definitely be in my CD collection because I really enjoyed this as well. Okay, so Nielsen wrote three concertos, and uh, the first one is the rather more romantic uh, violin concerto, and the soloist is, on that one is Bomsori, who is a South Korean violinist. Then we get the uh, flute concerto. The soloist there is Ula Milman, and the clarinet concerto. And Johnny Tessier is the um, clarinetist. And boy, all three of these, like the symphonies, the orchestra playing on these recordings is extraordinary, as is the solo playing as well. This is another Mm. real winner of an album. I was just riveted all the way through. And it's a pretty long album. It comes in at about 85 minutes. The earlier work here is the Violin Concerto. It was written in 1911, and this features the South Korean violinist Bamsori. Um, she's South Korean. Her full name is Bamsuri Kim, with Kim being the family name. And she's in her 30s, so she's pretty young, but she's been around. All right, so this um, work, we talked about this a few weeks ago, actually, when we did the Symphony 4 and the um, Violin Concerto by James Ennis, I believe it was, on Chandos. Hmm. And uh, here we're hearing a different performance. And it's, it's, it is different. It sounds different. Yeah. yeah. Bomsuri's violin tone isn't as sort of big and thick as Ennis's is, but that's not a bad thing. It actually gives the work a lot of intimacy, especially when you're playing in such a public work. It's actually, she achieves some very extraordinary things, and I'm going to show them to you this time. Remember, this uh, work is in two movements. It's four tracks, so each movement is kind of divided into two on the recording. It's a little complicated. If you if I didn't tell you that and you just listened to the work, you would think it was three movements because <laughs> of the way it's set up. But it is actually two. And uh, Nielsen sort of favored this. He did it in his um, Fifth Symphony as well. And he also does it in the Flute Concerto, which is very interesting. Anyway, the Violin Concerto, we have our Preludium, Largo. And it's got a powerful opening orchestra chord and yeah. entry by the violin. This is gonna, This just rivets you right away. Let's hear it and be riveted. Here we go.
and and that's going to go on for some time. And uh, I hope you notice also the droning um, bass note there too, which comes up so beautifully on the recording as well. I thought this was a pretty good recording, even though I've been reading online that some people didn't like the yeah. the recording. I don't know why. They think this and the previous symphonies like are boomy or too reverby, but I thought they were great. I don't. Yeah, I yeah. don't agree with that at all. Too reverby? No way. <laughs> anyway. So, as you heard, Balmsody is very emotive in her opening cadenza-like solo. She's got all those double-stop notes in there, too, and she just keeps the passion turned on. One never loses the presence of the orchestra during this with that sustained note in the background. I probably should have pointed it out. Maybe in the future I'll do that, but not today. Anyway, great full sound, I thought, with the violin tone on the thin side, but very present. That, I think, is her tone. I don't think it's the recording, and I like it. Now, at 141, 1 minute 41 seconds, there's a gorgeously executed handoff by the violin to the orchestra for the next section, in which the violin plays suitably sweetly. This has to be heard. This is, for me, this personally, this is a highlight, and it's something people might miss. I'll, I'll actually point this out when it's coming. Now listen to the way the violin tapers off and goes in, the orchestra goes to the next section. I wanted to point that out because that happens throughout this concerto, this recording. Mm. It's really amazing playing. It's very well thought out. The orchestral timbres like continue to draw my attention, and that's good. They're not upstaging the violin, but they're so attractive in their own right that you can't help but pay attention to them as well. Hmm. I love the serenity arrived at by the violin tone at 6 minutes and 10 seconds. It's a really well-thought-out movement. The pacing is perfect. It goes on to the allegro cavalleresco part. Cavalleresco, it's not really a word, but cavallo is a horse, and it sort of evokes knights. It's kind of an old-sounding kind of music. And it's got kind of a horse-parading theme at the beginning. This is track two, by the way, still movement one. It's recorded right up front. Bomsori comes in in the same spirit, really leaning into the accents in the rhythm. The wind writing comes up exceptionally well at a minute and 30 seconds. Again, at 2.42, there's a beautiful handoff by the violin to the orchestra, similar to what I just um, sampled. And I'm really intrigued by how well executed and thought out the performance is again. One thing that's coming across from me is just how much playing the violin does in this work. She's barely stopped playing since the beginning. And remember, at the beginning, she came in with that big, powerful cadenza-like opening. At 6 minutes and 15 seconds, she launches into a powerful cadenza with strong accents on the repeated double-stopped chords. Bobsori again puts a lot of passion into her playing, really throughout. She has a very romantic approach, which works well here. I like the way she also emphasizes the bass notes on her double-stopped chords. A lot of times they play a melodic role, but even when they don't, she brings them right up front, and I like the overall sound. Yeah, maybe we'll hear a little bit of that too.
Yeah. Well, it was great. You know, mm. <laughs> you got to be listening to two lines at the same time there. Make sure you don't miss any of it because she's just fantastic in this work. The orchestra's re-entry at 9 minutes and 50 seconds is nicely taken, too. We hear the Cavalaresco theme again. The orchestra makes a great case for the orchestral timbres used in this piece. I never really paid as much attention to them as I am now, and it makes me want to go back and hear the symphonies again uh, because of that. Beautiful fleet figuration from the violin from around the 12 minute and 50 second mark. The end of the movement is boldly and excitingly played, and can't wait for the second movement. Here it comes. It starts poco adagio, and the winds start this movement. This is uh, track three, if you're listening along. I'm enchanted by the timbres in a way I haven't been in other recordings of this work. Luisi puts the orchestra on an equal footing with the soloist when he gets the spotlight. But of course, he gives it to the soloist when she's um, soloing. Uh, the violin comes in echoing the sentiment provided by the winds, and the wind timbre and violin tones match in an interesting way, with the winds going for some more nasal sounds in their harmony. Man, there's so much to listen to here. He gets so many slight variations of timbre out of the accompanying uh, winds and um, brass in there. All right. The movement is played so that a lot of details become etched in the memory. For example, the deep pulsing wind chords and the violin solos from 345. Listen to those. I can't play all of this. We'll be here all night. At 455, there's another one of those section changes where the violin goes up for an impossibly quiet, yet fully registering tone to hand off to the orchestra, as I pointed out at the beginning. There are so many little pleasures in this movement, including the languorous descending tone of the violin from six minutes on, like a leaf slowly floating on the wind. The second half of the second and final movement is track four. It's a rondo, and I think the rondo theme here is played fairly metrically. It works well this way. I'm sure it's an intentional decision, but I'd prefer it to be a bit there to be a bit more of a smile to it. But I think they're going for drama here, and I don't want to take away that from their um, interpretation. Tempo is a shade on the slow side, I think, and I think this takes a bit of the cheerfulness of the theme away. Uh, surely, Louisiane Bomsodi's intention here. I do like the orchestra's loud entry at a minute and 36 seconds. The more metrical rhythm of the rondo theme does allow some orchestral detail to register more fully, and I like it for that. Listen at about the uh, two-minute mark for that. The loud fanfare from the orchestra registers beautifully at 3 minutes and 45 seconds, and the movement, as is the whole work, is being played for drama, as the forte in the orchestra at the sixth minute demonstrates, followed by a violin cadenza that's taken dramatically and expressively again with a lot of slowing. There's an especially beautiful change of tone on the violin just at the seventh minute, and I loved Baumstudy's execution of the melody with the pizzicati at six minutes and 25 seconds or so. At around the eight minute and 50 second mark, the rondo theme comes back, the second part floatingly played by Baumstudy after the nine minute and 10 second mark. Gigantic chord at the end follows a beautiful tapering off of the violin tone. There are so many pleasures in this work and in this performance that you just have to hear it on your own. Okay, I gave you a few samples but there, there are so many more. All right, moving on, 
to the flute concerto. Now, the flute concerto and the clarinet concerto are two late works of Nielsen's. Uh, the flute concerto was written in 1926. Now, the soloist here is Ulla Milman, the flutist. She's Danish and is the principal flutist of the or flautist, I guess we'd say, of the Danish National Symphony Orchestra. So she's stepped out from the uh, the orchestra here to, mm. to play this uh, solo. Nice of uh, Louisi to do that. This and the clarinet concerto have an interesting story. Nielsen wrote this piece for Holger Gilbert Jespersen, who was a member of the Copenhagen Wind Quintet, and he succeeded a another flautist, Paul Hagemann, in that chair. Now, Nielsen wrote a wind quintet for the ensemble, and he then decided to write a... because he loved the sound that they made. And then he decided to write a solo concerto for each of its five members. But he only got around to writing two of them before he died, which is um, rather sad. This one and the clarinet concerto. There would have been three more. Um, The clarinet concerto was written in 1928. He died in 1931. This piece is more modernist than the more romantic and earlier violin concerto. It lacks tonal stability, and that's important because really what the piece is about, like the Fourth Symphony, is the search for tonality. So while everybody else was following, say, Debussy's um, harmonic um, experiments or Stravinsky's rhythms or Schoenberg's uh, 12-tone technique, there were composers like Nielsen who were still working with harmony or with traditional harmony and just finding new ways to use it. And they sort of got overshadowed, but uh, their work is really worth hearing. So one of the guiding principles of the work, as I said, is the search for a key. And the key is finally established in the final second movement in a comic accidental way at the end. It's not accidental. I mean, you know, Nielsen wrote it, but it's in the narrative of the symphony. It's kind of, it's accidental. Mm-hmm. It's really fun if you hear it. Much of the content of the movement resembles chamber music between the flute and various instruments. And that really is when this work is at its best. Um, there's some very cool brass playing at the beginning. It's a bit ominous, but the flute comes in like a civilizing force with its light tone. I should mention Nielsen wrote this and the clarinet concerto for these members of the um, Copenhagen Wind Quintet, and he sort of put their personalities into the uh, composition. Hmm. So Holger Gilbert Jesperson was sort of a, how should we say, he was a bit of a, an aristocratic, highly civilized type of person, very fastidious, liked civilized things. So, of course, Nielsen's going to give him... A lot of buffoonery around him, <laughs> most mostly in the shape of the uh, the trombone, which plays a major role in this work. It comes across as very vulgar in this work. It's pretty fun. The flute, of course, has a really light tone. Uh, fastidious would be a good word for uh, the the flute, the flautist. <laughs> and uh, he's trying to just kind of have his fastidious, civilized life among all this buffoonery around him (laughs) there's a lot of rather brash ugliness around him in this work you'll hear this particularly in the low winds and brass at 136 there's a new theme in the orchestra noble and bright this is where the flute and this fastidiousness of the flautist as a character really shines and he plays with a bassoon in the second minute there are two beautiful lines in the third minute the flute plays a fluttering line as the clarinet or bass clarinet plays a counter melody also very beautiful so the flute it's almost like he's meeting some friends and they're having these really high level civilized cultured conversations when he's playing one on one with another instrument because they sort of combine in counterpoint like a Bach invention or something it's really lovely moments 
Ominous strings and low winds and even percussion and brass comes in in the fourth minute to set up an ominous atmosphere for the light-toned flute. The flute gets its most magical moment, I think, in the work at 5 minutes and 50 seconds. It plays a radiant theme in E major that should be remembered because it'll play a part in the climax that I was telling you about in the last moment. Let's listen to that. I wanted to get to the end of that passage when we hear the uh, the orchestra take him out right. of that magical space, but apparently he gets a lot of time with it. Let's remember that because we'll hear it again in this next movement. The key is disturbed by the orchestra, though, and the flute can't find it again. I didn't play that part <laughs> just because I wanted you to hear that beginning. The work is being played for contrast by Luisi and uh, the soloist uh, Milman, and again, excellently so. In the sixth minute, the flute gets a more meditative section with the strings, then starts a line with a lot of repeated notes at the beginning and a lot of staccato. At the seven-minute mark, the flute is briefly alone in the spotlight starting a cadenza, but by 7.28, it's energetically back. The flute starts another cadenza-like section in the eighth minute with an ominous but quiet timpani roll in the distance constantly present. The orchestration in this piece is, again, very worthwhile. It seems that the piece pits the sophisticated flute against his rather less sophisticated acquaintances among the orchestral instruments. After the cadenza, the music quietens, uh, allowing the flute some respite, and it reaches a relaxed conclusion. Now, the second and final movement is an allegretto. This starts ominously, too, with a string line. The flute starts in a pastoral style in duet with a bassoon, he gets a lot of space to play in a light, airy, fluty style in the beginning, with the orchestra always coming back to harsher harmonies, like the one we hear at the 1 minute and 30 second mark. I loved the passage with the flute and light strings after the 1 minute and 40 second mark. At 3.15, there's a real crisis point with the harmony becoming harsh and some percussion-loaded pounding chords, but the flute manages to find its lighter spirit again. Again, the way I'm interpreting what I'm hearing is that the flute is trying to tame the orchestra's more wayward forces. You might want to keep that in mind when you listen. And he seems to be mostly succeeding in sort of tamping them down temporarily, but not without difficulty. Robert Simpson, the British composer, remarked in his book, Carl Nielsen's Symphonist, that the most charmed moments in the first movement are in E major, and that would be the ideal way for this work to end. And... So I guess that's the key we're looking for, but no one seems to understand that. The climax comes as a rather clownish trombone portrayed as the most vulgar character to assault the flautist's <laughs> refined senses plays. Robert Simpson notes that he comes blundering in and plays in a key that doesn't fit in with what we're hearing, and more by luck than judgment, he lands himself in E major and plays the flute's earlier theme 
<laughs> that I sampled and keeps it in E major. So the trombone winds up stealing the flute's fire and reaching the E major that the flute has been looking for. Now, the flute is rather embarrassed by this because... Um, he wanted to find the E major, and the uh, the buffoonish character found it for him. It's it's really cute. Let's listen. I'll try to point it out. I'll talk over the music this time. Okay, here comes the trombone. The flute is annoyed. Now the trombone plays this theme. Here, the flute is upset about that, and the trombone does a downward glissando that's rather vulgar sounding. <laughs> it's really cute. Okay, the trombone celebrates with that vulgar downward glissando, and that upsets the flute, who starts carrying on and having his theme stolen while the timpani are heard behind him. The movement ends with the flute in celebratory mode, as the trombone does downward glissandos in a vulgar, celebratory way. A rather comic triumph for both at the end. They are together. Let's hear the end of the work. Let's just play this. Once again, the flute trying to uh, hit its high note while the trombone is grabbing the spotlight with his <laughs> glissandos. It's a really cute piece. All right, now the clarinet concerto, the last concerto on this album, features Johnny Tessier on the uh, clarinet. He's a uh, he's the principal clarinetist of the Danish National Symphony Orchestra, and he's French-American. Hmm. So I think that means he's born in France. Now, the interesting thing about this was it was written for the clarinetist Age Oxenvad of the Copenhagen Wind Quintet. He was the clarinetist. And he had a bipolar disorder, which probably accounts for the work's mood swings. There's a lot of anger in this work. The nastier part of these mood swings is instigated by the snare drum. Now, if you know anything about Nielsen's music, <laughs> the snare drum is often used in the Fifth Symphony right. to the same effect. It sets the clarinet off in that work as well. There's so much snare in this one, I thought it should be put in the title, you know, Concerto for Clarinet and Snare Drum. <laughs> well, you could have also there. had flute and, flute and trombone yeah, in the other have, work, yeah. too. <laughs> By the way, the original clarinetist Oxenfad uh, grumbled when rehearsing the score uh, that Nielsen must be able to play the clarinet since he had systematically used the notes that are most difficult to play. <laughs> it was like he was trying to deliberately punish him. This is the attitude that Oxenvad had. As with the flute concerto, the orchestral forces are small, almost chamber music proportions, so I think he wants to put the solo instruments in their natural habitat with the Copenhagen Wind Quintet. Anyway, this is in a single movement, but it's divided into four tracks. The first section, let's say, let's say track um, 
7 is allegretto un poco, and this starts with odd shifts of key, but with a commonplace enough rhythmic and melodic pattern. The clarinet comes in after the strings and plays it. The clarinet, as so often in Nielsen's works, already goes off the rails at about 30 seconds in, while the rest of the orchestra, rather than pulling him away, as in the flute concerto, tried to bring him back to the opening. So here the orchestra's trying to help him out, rather than trying to ruin his good time. Anyway, the clarinet does a lot of protesting, as can be heard at 140, and shortly after. The snare drum, at 150, drives it into a fit of anger. The clarinet has a meltingly beautiful theme at 220, taken up by the strings. At the 3 minute and 10 second mark, the snare drum appears again and momentarily angers the clarinet, who then snaps back into an amiable melody. I think you can interpret the snare drum as being something in his head that's setting him off. It's sort of like the <laughs> the thing, whatever chemical imbalance it is that sort of sets him off. A passage follows where the clarinet meanders in its low end. There's silence and a cadenza begins at 434 in which at points the acrobatic clarinet tries out the opening phrases on occasion. Tessier matches his colleagues on this album for beautiful tone, the other soloists is what I mean, which is on full display, especially towards the end of the cadenza in the instrument's lower glowing range. After the cadenza, the clarinet arrives back at the opening material, and the track ends at a fit of peak by the clarinet, with the orchestra continuing to try to establish the opening material. It loses energy, and then we go to the next section. Let's hear the clarinet uh, protesting and uh, the snare drum driving it into a fit of anger from around the uh, 1 minute and 40 second mark. Don't worry, folks. He'll be all right. <laughs> all right. So going into track eight, Poco Adagio. Uh, this begins with some beautiful wind harmony, very solemn sounding. The clarinet comes in with a gorgeous sustained tone, still holding on to elements of the opening. This section acts as the slow movement. Uh, the first two minutes have the clarinet in achingly beautiful mood. At around the 2 minute and 30 second mark, a more martial rhythm comes in, and the clarinet gets into more complaining mode. Nielsen's clarinet writing is always wild and fascinating, as you heard, and we know this from the Fifth Symphony as well, where the clarinet plays a major role. Here, in this work, the snare drum eggs on the clarinet's anger in the third minute in this section. The strings calm things down, and at the four-minute mark, we get a calmer, more sorrowful sound from the clarinet, all, of course, beautifully portrayed here by Tessier and the orchestra. This work has a lot of drama in it, and again, I'm really happy to hear, like, Luisi and the... Uh, orchestra play it to that effect and Tessier as well. There's another brief cadenza connecting this section to the next which starts on the next track, track 9, Allegro non troppo. This gets into a more cheerful mood in the orchestra. There's a gradual speeding up of tempo that's perfectly executed after the one minute mark. 
Uh, then the snare drum is almost whipping the poor clarinet into anger after a minute and 20 seconds. The clarinet has a lot of moods in this section, and I need to say it again, the Tessier completes the album's trifecta of fantastic tone and expression. There's a rather startling string effect at 438, and the clarinet and bassoon are duetting here in a rather crazed polyphony. The clarinet has another cadenza in the fifth minute, this time punctuated by honking lower notes and high note flourishes. It speeds up, and Tessier's technique really shines here. Clarinet tone leads us into Allegro Vivace, the, the last section, track 10. Uh, this section starts with a bit of a circus atmosphere. There's a lot of banging on the snare drum and aggressive playing in the orchestra as the clarinet tries to hold onto stability. The snare drum and orchestra constantly come back to disturb the soloist. There's actually some droning pastoral bass at the beginning of the third minute, which seems to slam the brakes on the clarinets spinning out of control. This always worked for Beethoven, too, just going for a walk in the woods. <laughs> at the end, the clarinet maintains a single beautiful tone as strings produce a ghostly high pair of rocking chords. Let's hear the ending. Let's, we want to hear the clarinet in a more beautiful mode, don't we? Okay, so we just hear the tone there. We don't really hear him get to play too much. You know, when, when I think about that, there would have been three more of these types of works, each one having something to say about the character of the soloist, the original soloist that was written for. It really makes me sad that uh, Nielsen passed away when he did. There would have been three fantastic uh, additions to the concerto repertoire, and especially to the uh, Wind and Brass concerto repertoire. Anyway, the performance of the violin concerto is amazing, both by Balmsori and the orchestra, and the recording is big and full, too. It's well thought out, with all handoffs between the violin and orchestra perfectly judged in a seamless way that I haven't heard played to this level before. This may be my favorite performance of the violin concerto by Nielsen, and this in spite of the slightly slow and inflexible tempo of the rondo part of the very last section of the second movement. Bombsody has a rather thin tone, which makes it intimate, but it's also very expressive and very passionate too. Uh, I love this performance in spite of the slowness of the last movement, which nevertheless is played in such a way by both violinist and orchestra that details stay in the ear long afterward. It allowed for a lot of expression, which made up for the slow tempo. The flute concerto, which is more comical though, it has dead serious parts in it, is also well played with Milman playing throughout with beautiful tone and contrasting well with the orchestra's darker and often uglier sounds. One gets the impression that the dedicatee Holger Gilbert Jesperson was being poked fun at, uh, being surrounded by vulgar orchestral forces. Still, the flautist gets to show some virtuosity while acting as the straight man or the put-upon character in this comedy. Again, Luisi doesn't shy away from the occasional ugliness in the score, and we get drama and comedy rather than constant beautiful tone, making this work communicate its message perfectly. The clarinet concerto completes the trifecta of fantastic performances with Johnny Tessier, putting himself fully into the mentally wavering elements of the clarinet's part and producing stellar tone throughout. Fabio Luisi really has an ear for Nielsen's music, and the Danish National Symphony Orchestra execute it with a lot of drama. I can't recommend this highly enough, and if you're going to get this, listen to the set of symphonies as well by the same forces. 
Definitely interesting and enjoyable. You know, I own other recordings of all of these works, but the enthusiastic performances here and this huge sound just made them grab my attention a lot more than when I've ever heard them before. Out of the three, I guess I'd have to pick the violin concerto as my favorite, just because the orchestral parts in it have a lot of familiar elements to right. Nielsen's symphonies. It's easier on the ear. The other two works are more modernist, more 20th right. century. And so that gives a lot to enjoy. And also just the intimate connection between the violin and orchestral parts is really fantastic. On the clip that you played, if you listen to that whole first violin entrance, it creates this huge tension at the end that's resolved in one of the most beautiful releases I've ever heard into the orchestra. And that had me hooked right from the beginning. You know, so can't be happier with uh, this and those three symphony discs as well. Uh, this is great to hear some fresh Nielsen recordings. Yeah, this is going to have to, once they release this on CD, which I imagine they will, this is going to go right into the collection. I can I can <laughs> tell you that. I want to mention also that what you said about the release, we, we can't possibly sample that on a podcast because that's something that happens over time. Like yeah. tension has to build up over time in order for that release to occur. So you really need to hear the whole performance to um, uh, get a, a feeling for that. Yeah. yeah. This is one <laughs> bad thing about sampling. In classical music especially, we can't give you that because a lot of things happen over long periods of time. And the uh, what happened before is what makes the section you're listening to so beautiful. Okay, the third classical recording is our contemporary composer of the week, a Finnish composer, Kalevi Aho, who's a very prolific composer. The Beast label, who released uh, this album, <laughs> have released a lot of his music. And there seems to be a lot of it, and he's still going. Anyway, these are also concertante works, more concertos. We're all concertos tonight in classical music. But these are for rather unusual instruments that we don't normally hear in classical music as solo instruments. The recorder, the mm. saxophone, and the accordion. <laughs> so these are three <laughs> separate concertos, one for each of those three instruments. So the um, soloists here are, oh man, these are hard names to say. Iro Saunamaki on the recorder. Esa... Pietila on the tenor saxophone, and Yane Falkea Joki on the accordion. Apologies to the artist if I have <laughs> mispronounced your name. This is from the Saima Sinfonietta, uh, conducted by Erki Lasonpalo. Lasonpalo. Now, I've heard the Finnish names are always have the accent at the beginning, so I'm going to try to go by that rule, even though I didn't with the three soloists. <laughs> I'll try to fix that. Anyway, tracks one through four, the concerto for recorder and chamber orchestra, Iro Saunamaki, there I go, on the recorder. This requires the soloist to play four types of recorder, from bass to sopranino, and <laughs> we're going to hear all of them. <laughs> all right, so the first movement, Misterioso and Prezo. This starts with an intriguing atmospheric low sound, very quiet on the bass recorder. It has to be the bass recorder. It sounds like there's some flutter-tonguing in the tone. It's a beginning that indicates that timbre and tone are going to be a focus of this work. Well, let's hear it.
Okay, so you can hear the tone and the slight uh, flutter tonguing in there, you know, kind of making the tone waver a bit. It gets louder than that, though. <laughs> At 1 minute 50 second, we come out of this with an orchestral chord, and then right away, we're hearing a tweeting sopranino recorder. It sounds a little bit like a piccolo, and it's well recorded here. Um, this instrument can easily be piercing, but uh, it's not here, actually. It's really well recorded and performed by the uh, soloist. Back to the bass recorder after another sustained orchestral chord. The orchestra seems to be acting as like a separating wall between the two instruments, giving the soloist a chance to change instruments. At 347, more orchestral swells, and then the sopranino again, tweeting like a bird. I like the way the orchestral chord at 420 or so imitates the soloist's flutter tonguing, which is only heard intermittently. The second uh, section, this really goes, is a one more of a one-movement work. Crotchet equals 100. This connects to the previous movement and starts with slightly different material. Here we're hearing what I guess I'd call a tenor recorder, or the normal recorder that we are familiar with. It's rich toned and it's low end, and we hear mostly that, though it does climb up in its range at times. This is the instrument we think of when we hear the recorder. Um, the orchestra remains atmospheric while the recorder gets more melodic material here. There's a big orchestral buildup at 145, climaxing at 247 with powerful timpani hits and mostly vibrato-less string chords being sawed back and forth by the bows. There's interesting percussion toward the end. We go to the third movement, presto, which is connected again. The percussion more or less takes over for the opening. A wind soloist plays a theme as strings creep in. There are also interesting low brass repeated notes. At 109, we hear what I guess is a wind instrument playing split tones and a soprano recorder playing some fleet lines. The recorder slows fleetly over a bed of tremolo strings, and again, the percussion at 2.30 registers powerfully. Then we get the lower recorder playing split tones, and this leads to the next movement. I definitely want to sample those split tones, though, so let's try that. The fourth movement starts with a kind of stillness. Uh, the soprano recorder is playing a melody over repeating lines in the orchestra, mostly winds. It sounds like there's a gentle marimba keeping time on the downbeats in the back at around the 1 minute and 15 second mark. The movement keeps this tone and energy level throughout. It's a relatively static background which the recorder comments over. The fifth movement, vivace, connects again and the soprano recorder starts a dancing line and we hear the sopranino as well. Then two at the same time. I wonder if the soloist is playing them like uh, Rasan Roland Kirk here. <laughs> if, he has, if he's playing them both in his mouth at the same time, I really don't know. That would be neat. Ah, uh, yeah. Maybe they could let us know. Anyway, the orchestra takes over the dance, complete with a kind of percussion shaker keeping time. The recorder gets a sort of uh, cadenza at 214, playing split harmonic tones. It's a cool sound. Let's hear it.
Alright, so you're hearing two notes at the same time. That's one person doing that, which is very cool. There's a coda, track, uh, track six, movement six, and this connects as well. The orchestra takes over at the beginning with staccato repeated chords, and the sopranino appears in the its chirpiness, commenting in a bird-like way. Now, I haven't sampled that, but I'll let you um, hear that on your own. In fact, the samples I've used don't really give any idea of what this piece sounds like because <laughs> it changes quite a lot. These three works that we're going to hear on this album are very difficult to sample because part of the nature of Ajo's music is his constant changing of sort of the um the, the backdrop or the uh landscape that the soloists are playing over it can be loud and then it gets soft and it's almost like we're seeing a new sort of um section of music every once in a while it changes very rapidly he's a very prolific composer with a lot of ideas and he puts a lot of those ideas into the same work he gets a lot of sounds and technique out of the soloist in this work and really in all three that we're going to hear. With rapid repeated notes sounding here in the first minute, there's a huge orchestral tremolo crescendo suddenly stopping before the second minute, and we hear the recorder, the tenor one, with its rich woody tone and breath-popping notes. I love the sound. It sort of wanders in its tonal space and ends the piece with a non-rounded tone. I found this piece really interesting throughout, mostly for the different sounds made on the various recorders. It's really interesting contemporary concerto for a set of antique instruments, really. All right, we go to the uh, concerto for tenor saxophone and small orchestra. This is tracks 7 through 14. The tenor saxophonist is Esa Piatila, and the percussion instrument that we sometimes hear on this uh, album or on this piece is a goblet drum, the darabuka. The first movement, Mesto, starts quietly with light brushed string and brass sounds. Again, it's atmospheric, but in a sinister way here. The saxophone comes in at about the 42nd mark with a smoky line, sounding a bit like he's playing a ballad. In his second entry, he matches the orchestra, who have a lot of lines that aren't lining up. They come into harmony for their next statement, and the sax builds on that. A Siciliano pulsing motif starts in the orchestra just after the two-minute mark and continues to build as the sax starts showing more emotion and climbs into its higher end. This movement goes right into Interludio 1, track 8. Pounding percussion accentuate the saxophone's line, which has a rough tone at times. It's mostly climbing here. And then we go into the third um, section, uh, track 9, Vivacissimo Leggero. The sax disappears as the orchestra livens up with brisker lines. The sax picks up the short patterns in the strings that the strings were playing and extends it. There's a tambourine-like instrument sounding through all of this. And just before the second minute, shrieking repeated chords come from the orchestra as the sax wails out some notes and even goes for a split tone briefly at around 1 minute and 15 seconds. The sax starts a pattern that he speeds up as it repeats at 3 minutes and 30 seconds. At 3 minutes and 45 seconds, after we hear a thunderous bass drum, uh, he does it again, and the movement mellows out for the next interlude, Interludio 2, track 11. This has a rather droopy, downwards-moving sax lines. There's a harp gently accompanying. Uh, he gets more hopeful as the interlude goes on and leaves off on a lighter, positive note. I think we should probably hear this. We haven't heard any of this work yet.
again, I'm sampling more atmospheric, quiet parts, but it's not all like that. I should mention that's track 10, not track 11. I kind of miscounted. Track 11, which is movement 5, is Andante Dolente. There's a big mood change here as the strings play a downer of a harmony, and the sax tone changes to something less bright with more of a sort of matte sound to it, so it's more opaque. The harmony with its odd intervals brings across the dolente, or suffering quality, of this movement. There are some interesting split tones after a minute and 40 seconds, and which stood out for me. It sounds cool, as do the later ones, toward the end of the second movement. Let's hear a little bit of that. You generally don't sound uh, saxophones sounding like that in jazz, <laughs> but um, there you go. Okay, textures change fast in this piece, really in all of them, even if the music isn't moving at high speed. And at the end of this, we get an arpeggiating harp, making the entire texture gentler. The sixth movement, track 12, Allegretto Ritmico. Uh, this has slow, overlapping rhythms in the orchestra, all wind instruments. The sax, as has been the case in this piece, picks up one of the lines and starts moving beyond the orchestra statements with that. The sax starts making some runs up the scale and playing a figure that the lower brass pick up while the strings play repeated shrieking chords. The sax picks up the shrieking rhythm uh, where it sounds gentler. Uh, we're hearing the goblet drum or darabuka here too, and the sax plays along with it appealingly for a moment. But the quicksilver way this composition changes comes in to interrupt that. They do play again, though not really together, after the four minute mark. In the seventh movement, there's a cadenza, and the darabuka sounds heavily here, and the sax starts its contemplative cadenza. The darabuka continues in the background during this, and the sax spits out a few extended techniques at around the 42nd mark, then climbs up as the Databuka crescendos as well. The strings come in and start playing aggressive statements. And finally, we get to the epilogue. A gong introduces this movement, along with a contrabassoon or euphonium. I'm not sure which. Uh, this movement features gentle upward and downward scale movements passed on between various instruments in the orchestra for timbral contrast. The sax finally comes in at around the 1 minute and 20 second mark. There's a plucked string instrument. I'm not sure what it is. It sounds like it could be a muted cello played pizzicato. Mysterious high wind figures in the flute sound, and the plucking string continues its scalar movements. Again, there's so many things I could um, sample in this work because there, there are just so many different sounding elements. And um, again, I encourage you to hear the work all the way through. The final concerto is Sonata Concertante for Accordion and Strings. Yana Valkeayoki is uh, the accordionist <laughs> on this. Uh, the first movement is a prelude, and Aho seems to like to build up his works. This starts on a single bass note and quickly escalates to the accordion, which plays some really non-romantic chords. <laughs> In fact, it has a haunted house quality when it plays dissonances. The movement seems to be moved by strings and the accordion solos over where they arrive. 
Uh, tonally, this movement is cloudy, but it does seem to wind up on a tonality at 145, which it emphasizes via repeated hammering. Uh, the piece quiets suddenly at the two-minute mark, and we hear the faint accordion in its high end here. It's a sensitive section of the score, with the cello playing throaty melodies while the accordion comments in its higher range. Its approach to solo is constantly changing. Sometimes it's busy, sometimes it's quiet and spare. Uh, the double bass plays a long, deep line at the end, which the accordion answers in its highest end. It plays a descending figures, which leads to the next movement. Let's just hear the opening of this work. I gotta tell you, I'd get off that Paris subway right away if I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> a little haunted house quality there too. All right, the six track sixteen, Passacaglia. This is a familiar form to us. It's got a repeating bass line, and and uh, variations happen above that. There's no pause between this and the previous movement. We hear in the strings the Passacaglia bass line that will be improvised over. The strings play a variation without the accordion first. The accordion comes in midway through the first minute with chords in a laughing rhythm and pattern. In Ajo's characteristic way, this suddenly changes to arpeggio patterns and then later to scale patterns, accompanied by similar patterns in the strings, all the while with the lower strings outlining the bass pattern. The accordion gets agitated and virtuosic at around 310, then plays chords in a dotted rhythm, uh, quickly changing to rapid figuration. This goes into the fourth minute. There's a series of harsh chords led up to by a rushing scale on the accordion started around the 4 minute and 30 second mark. At 5.30, Aho draws some odd sounds from the instrument. Then there's a brief moment in the spotlight at the 6 minute mark, answered by a solo violin. The movement ends quietly, and there's a pause. We get the second movement. This is, again, like that Nielsen um, violin concerto. It's four tracks two movements divided into four tracks. So track 17, it's a prelude. Starts with the solo accordion, playing an odd high chord and accompanying that with melodic figures. It's kind of science fiction spacey. A new figure starts in the orchestra at the one minute mark, which the accordion picks up on. It then solos alone for about 20 seconds, after which accompaniment comes back. Quick crescendoing lines come out of the orchestra, agitating the accordion and leading it to play harsh, repeating chords. At 144, more aggressive rhythm and repeating figures come out of the orchestra, and we hear an intriguing, harsh, almost banging accordion sound. The accordion, it turns out, is capable of more sounds than I thought. <laughs> um, at the end of this section, the accordion plays a crescending high note. Oh, boy. Okay, well, let's hear, let's hear this bit of the banging accordion. It's kind of like a barking dog. <laughs> I wrote hyperventilating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We go to the final uh, track here, which is a fugue. Very traditional. Hmm. Uh, there's a brief pause, and then the slow fugue theme starts in the strings. The accordion eventually comes in and plays what, to my ears, 
is material counter to the fugue material. At the two-minute mark, it sounds like a new fugue theme emerges. The strings keep it up while the accordion doubles all his notes. At around the three-minute and 50-second mark, there's a new dotted rhythm in the accordion and a new theme, and the rest of the strings play counterpoint in fugue. The movement, for the most part, is intellectually fugal without any histrionics or harshness. We hear some impressive virtuosity from Valkyajuki in his characterful descending scales. The strings straighten out their rhythm as the accordion continues playing the dotted rhythm. At the 7 minute and 55 second mark, the strings start several themes that are abandoned after the accordion seems to reject them with its chords. Something is decided on at 8.38, but it's brief and there's an emphatic chord to end the piece. All right, so one of the enjoyable elements in Aho's music is his creative use of sounds that individual instruments can make. The ear is often surprised at what it's hearing, and I've offered you a few samples of some of those sounds. And that certainly draws me. He's a good orchestrator. Uh, though these works can get agitated, they're generally on the quiet side, the accordion work less so, though. But please note, that does not mean that they're relaxing. <laughs> they're certainly not. <laughs> One word doesn't necessarily imply the other, so you can be quiet but not relaxing. Aho is extremely prolific, yet seems to still have ideas to spare. These three works pack in a lot of material. The samples I gave you don't do them any justice at all. They're just kind of more unusual elements of the scores that I want you to hear. And the unusual timbres of the three instruments are fully taken into account in what goes on around them. It's certainly an interesting listen, and we'll have you rethink these three solo instruments. Yeah, this is interesting for the variety of sounds and combinations of timbres, and <laughs> it, you know, you don't usually hear a recorder doing something like this, uh, and you don't hear it at all in modern music, so uh, that was kind of interesting. And uh, the accordion, you know, that was, we had some accordion earlier in the year, and so it's kind of interesting to hear in a yeah, classical Yeah, the Moscots setting. one, the... Uh... Right. I remember that. Yeah. But these are, yeah, they're not relaxing performances at all. Don't put them on when your wife's coming home from work or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not like that. But if you're in the mood to hear some, you know, interesting possibilities of instruments and kind of intriguing combinations of orchestral sounds, yeah, these are kind of on the cutting edge of some interesting ideas, I think. So it'd be interesting to hear some of his other works as well. And that's all I got. Huh? Which is and it was plenty. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. All right. Well, over on the jazz side, we're going to have a big band bonanza this week. All big band recordings, and I think they're all really interesting, and they have some unique character to them. We're going to start out deep in the heart of Texas. This is Chris Berg and the Metroplexity Big Band with a new recording perspective. It's on the Summit label, came out August 11th. Chris Berg, bassist, composer, and arranger, earned his master's and bachelor's of music degrees in jazz studies at the University of North Texas, where he directed jazz ensembles and taught big band arranging. He's been the director of jazz studies at Collin College near Dallas for 20 years. He's a composer and arranger for Bellwin Jazz and has written charts for numerous artists and school programs across the U.S. and the world. And his Metroplexity Big Band has been a staple in the Dallas area for quite some time. They've got a couple previous recordings. There's Time and Management in 2014. That's on Mama Records. And this time last year, 2012, also on Mama Records. And I think Mama, from what I understand, 
was taken over by Summit Records in around 2006. So it's part of that label for distribution. And on this recording, we've got some big name guests, Randy Brecker, Eric Marienthal, and Tom Malone. And Randy Brecker writes some intro notes about uh, how in the past you would have to go to New York or LA to find the best recording releases. But now the music scene is sort of, his word I think is cracked open with great local bands. And, you know, that's one of the things we've tried to do on this podcast, too, is not just focus on New York or the jazz centers, but jazz from and music from all around the country and the U.S. and the world, because there's great music scenes going everywhere. So it's kind of intriguing to find something like this from a different city. And I want to thank Chris for sending me all the album notes and all the credits for this. So thanks for helping me out with that, Chris. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And let's go through the band quickly on trumpets. We've got Micah Bell, Thomas Ebby, Luke Wingfield, Pete Claggett, Stuart Mack, Jeff Linebaugh, Andrew Bezik, Ken Edwards, and Jake Boldman. Trombones, Tim McMillan, Keith Oshido, Milos Yoas, Seth Vatt, John Adamo, Simon Willits. On saxes, Bruce Bonestingle, Sarah Roberts, Brian Clancy, Brian Goro. Roger Holmes, Heath Jones, Mike Morrison, Kevin McNerney, and Andrew Stonerock. And the rhythm section is Kent Ellingson on piano, Greg Bissonette on drums on the first track. Then we've got John Simon on drums, tracks 2, 3, 4, 5, 7. Troy Kahn on guitar, Ezrin Guzman on percussion, and Stockton Helbing on drums on tracks 6 and 8, and Tom Birchall on guitar as well. We've got additional woodwinds by Kristen Berg, and additional guitars, Chris uh, Berg. And we've got one track with flute, track nine, Sal Lozano. This was recorded at Crystal Clear Sound in Dallas, Texas. Producers Chris Berg and Kent Stump, executive producer Chris Berg and Yvette Berg, and the mixing and mastering also by Kent Stump. So tonight we're going to hear a lot of great arranging on these recordings. Just like in the classical, there's too much to talk about in terms of all yeah. the parts mm. and sections like I usually talk about in small group recordings. So I'll just pick up the main features of the tunes and highlights as we go through. I'm going to start out with the first track, Modern Technology, Chris Berg's original. And this features uh, Tom Bones Malone. More about him uh, as we go on. Uh, things start out playful with some band chatter, Tom tuning, and then a cacophony of instruments doodling until you get hit squarely between the eyes with a line <laughs> of whole band stabbing hits of six notes to get the tune going. Uh, it's a funky one with a great groove from Berg's electric bass, which underpins most tunes on the recording. Greg Vissonette on drums here and Ellingson on Rhodes piano on this tune. Why don't we uh, check this out? I think this is just a lot of fun. I dig it too. Yeah, so that's a fun start. Now there's a cool 
repeated riff line that swells in with trombone saxes and electric guitar and cool staggered barry sax blurbs and trumpet hits the next section has berg's bass working with sax lines against swelling trombone lines and trumpet interjections then there's some too funky guitar i mean too much like 70s tv theme level uh, really cool and very funky trombone solo section uh, from tom malone that ends with a high cry and great backing horn arrangements. And by the way, everyone knows Tom Malone. You say, no, I don't. Yes, you do. Because he's recorded on more than a thousand records, uh, like 3,000 radio and television commercials, and over 4,000 live television shows. He was in the Blues Brothers. That's uh, Bones Malone on trombones. If you've seen that movie, Saturday Night Live Band, Blood, Sweat and Tears, CBS Orchestra, and a member of the house band on The Late Show with David Letterman. I'm sure you've seen it before if you're in the U.S. Then uh, Brian Goral gets an intense tenor sax solo with some huge brass stabs pushing him along. The horns build up in a tight arrangement of crazy syncopation and have some exchanges with Greg Bissonette's drums. Then we hear the main tune section from before. It vamps for a bit and gets soft. Uh, I thought there might be one of... uh, Mike's dreaded fade-outs, but no, <laughs> it builds up to a big drum break and final brass blasts. And so yeah. it's a real high-energy start to the recording. I should say in jazz, this was a good week for the fade-outs because I don't think there were any. Uh, no, but I don't believe there were. I don't remember any anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So track two, a tune from Randy Brecker, Sponge. And I guess uh, Chris Berger arranged it from the composition he sent him. And Randy Brecker is featured here. John Simon's drums get it started. The melody line has edgy intervals and harmonies and really pierces with blaring trumpets and searing electric guitar working together over a driving beat. The next section is cool with trumpet and sax exchanges over funky keyboard rhythms. Then it takes off swinging over Berg's walking bass and band sections trading off to break for a tenor sax solo from Brian Clancy. There's this really huge hit and fall from the horns that then gets whipped back up into a final scream. This is a kind of really exciting arranging that uh, you can find all over this recording. And I really wanted to um, just play that as a little sample. No, I wish we were on video so that people could see Russ's uh, <laughs> access yeah. that he's making. <laughs> yeah, when that fall comes, it gets whipped right back up. That's like, it's got to be so exciting to play that. Uh, anyway, uh, tight horn stabs back Clancy's fluid blowing that you hear there. Then Randy Brecker follows with the solo, and he, he sounds better and better. Well, he's always guesting on everyone's recordings these days, and his solos are as uh, good and powerful as ever. He sounds relaxed and fluid, building great melodic lines into a final screaming line. Things come down quieter, with Berg working a repeated note bass line and the trombones getting cool low spy theme hits uh, the sax is swirling on top with some topsy-turvy arranged lines then it returns to the funky section we heard before over the keyboards and into the big swinging section and ends up with a repeat of the searing guitar and trumpet opening theme intense tune from randy brecker and some powerful arranging from berg track three is called at Water's Edge. It's one of Berg's originals. This one starts with a full band arrangement of lines over drum fills from Simon. Then it comes down quiet with some hypnotically rhythmic acoustic piano chords to segue into a fluid solo tenor sax melody from 
Brian Gorell. The horn arrangement builds up gradually with intersecting lines and nice accents from Berg's bass below and drum hits to a hold. It gets quieter with a light Latin-y groove in the bass line and cymbals for a trumpet solo from Pete Claggett. Uh, he keeps it lilting and delicate, even with lines rising into the higher register. It's very tasty. The band builds to more blasts and then more sax from Goral over a new syncopated rhythm section groove. The horn lines match the hits and build up with Goral soaring out in the gaps. A new little clicky rhythm section groove emerges and the band builds up again to some screaming lead trumpet. Uh, there's a little taste again of the rhythmic acoustic piano that we heard at the start and the drums kick the horns into a final line and scream to end it. I really like the dynamic contrasts, evolving rhythmic feels, and the return of familiar ideas in the arrangement. Track four is Footprints. This is a Wayne Shorter tune. It's from his 1966 recording, Adam's Apple, and this features Eric Marienthal on alto sax. It starts out with a super funky sax section solely, and the standing out berry sax is really cool. Let's take a listen to the beginning of this tune just to get the feel for it. sax. <laughs> I always love the berry sax. So the bass and drums kick in there, as you heard, and Berg gets a cool rising bass line going. Trombones and then trumpets join in to build it up, and the groove continues to bring in Eric Marienthal with cool rhythmic change-ups to navigate with bass and drums locking in. A full band arrangement develops with lots of different section lines to a brass hold. Then a new Latin groove builds energy to some trumpet screams. Kent Ellingson has a caffeinated acoustic piano solo with lots of speedy lines and punctuated chords. And Marienthal is next for a solo as Ellingson adds some nice Cubanesque piano below. It's a great groove with extra Latin percussion and Marienthal keeps it searing with intense licks and altissimo reaches. The horns stack up in backing lines and continue on into a powerhouse full band section into a drum solo from John Simon with some cool beat change-ups. The whole band is back with the melody sections and that driving Latin groove section into some final holds and gaps for Marienthal to cry out and a final alternating note trumpet scream. Really exciting stuff. Track 5 is the title track, Chris Berg's perspective. A cymbal roll brings in horns ringing in like stacking bells on long tones. The Barry Sachs and Berg's acoustic bass on this one have neat lines together before things kick up with drums and blasting horn lines to a little break. Then the trombones get some syncopated fun on their own to get things swinging. There's a nicely arranged melody line of tenor sax and harmon muted trumpet that other horn lines build around in a full band arrangement. Nice rhythmic change-ups and cymbal work underneath by Simon. Back to the solo bone section and another band build up to a medium swing groove with walking bass for a tenor sax solo from Brian Clancy with horn backing. I like how the tempo gets a halftime feel at the end and then a reset with the rhythm we heard on the bones played on the piano for Stuart Mack to get a trumpet solo over. He builds short phrases with some half valve effects into some agile double time lines with great phrasing. 
the sexes get a tribal war dance rhythmic thing going with the drums next and the brass more moving lines on top. It builds more with some intense drums and a cool triplet line into a full band swelling arrangement. We hear the earlier theme, this time with open trumpets to a subdued ending with some muted trumpet added. Very rhythmically interesting arrangement. Track six is from A to Z, also a Chris Berg original. This one starts with four measures of funky bluesy solo piano from Kent Ellingson. Bass and drums join in for a repeat with some Latin percussion too, making a fun groove. Tenor sax and guitar get the sassy melody that gets some stop time spots into the trumpets, taking a turn at it and then handing it back to the sax and guitar and building lines and blasts with the trombones. Ooh, then a fun bass and Latin percussion interlude. The trombones build in with lines, then saxes and trumpets to a solo break for Thomas Abey to get a trumpet solo. Nice Latin feel and phrasing. The horns build to another break and then an animated piano solo from Ellingson with speedy lines. The next break is for Keith Oshido's trombone with some tricky slide work and nice weavings through the chord changes. The whole band has a nice section to a reset with the piano and a final whole band build up with the melody, bass and percussion with bones again. The final exchanges between trumpet screams and Barry sax blasts are a lot of fun. Track seven, another Chris Berg original, Adventures. Something different for this one, rubato melodic phrases with Berg's bass taking the lead with soft legato horn line harmonies moving together and around. There are pauses between phrases and then the cymbals trace out a 6-8 rhythm to be joined by rhythmic piano and dotted quarter note bass lines. The horn sections have legato lines weaving with each other as it builds up with some Latin percussion too. The rhythm section drops out for the horns to go on their own until snare drum brings the rhythm section back to power the horns to a climax with punctuated stabs. There's some interesting ominous guitar underneath too, I think there. Uh, that breaks into an open section with ringing piano. And do I hear a little castanet in the head percussion there? <laughs> nice little touch. Ping pong trombone lines set up a new melody line with unison soprano sax and Berg's bass. Interesting combination of tones. That was Bruce Bonestangle on the soprano sax. And he continues on for a solo over a shaker groove. Uh, he swoops up some fast fingered licks with a lot of energy as the groove intensifies and the horns build into a big layered arrangement ending in trumpet fanfares. A drum break brings back the earlier section with guitar to an exciting ending of fast rising sax lines and trumpet blasts. Track eight is called Cool Man Jack and that's by the drummer here, Stockton Helbing. An interesting loping, swinging groove for an intro. There's some ringing guitar notes and an ominous minor bass line. It almost sounds like bass clarinet joining on the low line, uh, but maybe it's just Barry Sax. The horn sections stack on with some fun Harmon muted trumpet trills, and a drum roll gets it off on a swing over walking bass. Berg's on acoustic bass on this one. A trombone and tenor sax get the riffy melody line, and nice trombone hits there too. There's a pregnant pause before a new section, and it's definitely bass clarinet in there. Uh, it builds up with muted trumpets on top of the arrangement, and then the melody gets taken by the whole sax section with muted trumpets getting a line on top. Back to the ominous opening idea with the trombones and then saxes and trumpets building it up to a tenor sax solo from Brian Clancy with nice tone and phrasing, taking it way up high and getting some angsty cries. Uh, the horns build it back to a break and switch to a trombone solo from Keith Oshiro that has smooth reach all the way up. 
The backing horn arrangement is great and carries on into a full band buildup with a detached lead trumpet scream. It winds down into the ominous intro idea with drum tom fills and the horn sections with muted trumpets take it to a final oomph. And track nine, Recordame, of course, uh, the Joe Henderson great tune from page one, uh, 1963 record. And ooh, Sal Lozano starts it out with solo flute. It's very intense and cool with some flutter-tonguing, breathy urgency, and minor modal improvisations. Drums kick it into a rocky intro arrangement with some searing guitar under the horn lines. Uh, Lozano gets the famous melody lines. Check out the way the bass, drums, and piano lock in on figures underneath. This is really cool, so I think we should uh, check this out uh, so you can get this flavor on the last tune on the recording. move under there Ooh. yeah so there the trombone joins the flute as a samba groove takes shape they go around again with the full band adding in it builds through a transition section with guitar and horn lines and then lozano is off on an improvised solo nice rhythm guitar here adding to the feel of pulsing samba electric bass from berg with latin percussion ellingson gets a piano solo next with exciting rhythmic lines and high runs uh, Michael Bell gets a trumpet solo. Actually, sounds more like a flugelhorn here with the fat tone. Some nice little ornamental turns and reaches up high. There's a nicely arranged sax section with the flute added in, and the whole band gets a skillful arrangement that builds up into a cool vamping section that starts with synced guitar and bass riffs over Latin percussion. The band builds up from trombone licks, sax and flute with hints of the melody, and then trumpets to a falling cascade of trumpets and final lines with drum breaks to some final big hits. And that wraps it up. It's a high energy big band recording that has all the right ingredients. First, interesting original compositions from Berg, Randy Brecker, Stockton, Helbing, and one classic Joe Henderson tune. Just as essential are the skillful arranging skills from Berg, making all the tunes exciting and adventurous. You won't get bored here with the constant rhythmic inventiveness and changing instrumentation. It's a powerful band with strong sections all around, screaming trumpets, thick trombones, and saxes. Guitar plays an essential role in some of the tunes, and Berg's bass lines hold things down, and have active parts in the arrangements, sometimes working melody lines with other instruments. Of course, the great soloists, Brecker, Malone, and Marienthal all shine, but the band soloists are all unique and high level as well. Yeah, this is a really exciting record. Um, yeah. The ensemble playing really knocked me out, really, all the way through. 
they're really tight in every hairpin turn of melody and mm. change of rhythm and texture, and there are plenty of them to keep the ears uh, and brain engaged too. The sound of the album it was really well produced as well. Like the sound of the album was full, yeah. really enjoyable. It's it's more of a studio sound. Right. Uh, no problem with that when the band sounds like this. Um, you can easily pick up every detail. For that, I preferred this to a live concert hall sound because you can like really pick out a lot of detail right. out of the texture. I, I guess I would have liked a little less reverb at times, like on that flute solo at the very end. There was a lot of reverb <laughs> on that. Reverb, yeah. But that's what they wanted, I guess. Or oh, the trumpet at, at Water's Edge, too, had a lot of reverb on it. That's just taste, though. It makes the sound a little larger than life, and I prefer to just hear their tone. I'm always mm. kind of looking for the, you know, the tone. Um, both solos were really exciting and would have been fine without the reverb. Standout tracks for me were Modern Technology, the first track, the one you sampled, and from A to Z with its Latin groove. But really, it was a good listen all the way through. Yeah, exciting stuff. All right, the next recording, we're going to be focusing on the vocalists, but also great arrangements and appropriately titled Voices. Yeah. This is by the Danny Jonokuchi Big Band. It's on Outside in Music came out August 18th. Now, Danny's originally from Los Angeles, and yes, that is a Japanese name. His father is Japanese, but now he's come from California, active in New York. He holds a master's degree in composition from the Aaron Copeland School of Music at Queens College, an undergraduate jazz studies degree from Temple University's Boyer College of Music and Dance, where he studied with Terrell Stafford, a great trumpeter who we just heard his uh, most recent recording a couple weeks back. Now, Danny currently leads three ensembles, large ensembles, the Danny Jonokuchi Big Band 17-piece collection uh, that we're going to hear here. He's also got the Danny Jonokuchi and the Revisionists and the New Alchemy Jazz Orchestra. Uh, so he's got three large groups that he works with. Voices here is a celebration of the great tradition of jazz vocalists backed by a jazz orchestra. And what's cool about this is we've got 11 different singers they're all on the New York City scene, and so we get a different singer to check out for each tune, which is a pretty cool idea. And all the arrangements are of jazz standards, all done by Danny Jonokuchi. So let's go through the musicians in the band. On the saxes and reeds, we've got Andrew Gould, Christopher McBride, and Chris Oates on alto saxes. On tenor sax, John Bechet, Chris Lewis, and on the baritone sax, Andrew Gutoskos. Uh, also got doubling on clarinets with the tenor saxes and uh, altos playing flute and Gutoskos also on flute. On trumpets, Nick Marchion, Sam Hoyt, James Zoller, Noah Halpern, and John Lake, Scott Wendholt, Bruce Harris. And the last three only play on tracks 4, 7, 9, and 11. Trombone section, Robert Edwards, Sarah Giacovino, Jason Jackson, and Reginald Chapman on the bass trombone. In the rhythm section, Jeb Patton on piano, Samuel Harris, upright bass, Kevin Congleton, drums, and Victor Pablo on percussion. Starting out with the first track, The One I Love Belongs to Somebody Else. This is by Isham Jones and Gus Kahn. The song was recorded by Isham Jones Orchestra, 1923 going back a hundred years already. And this features Alexa Barcini, who's originally from Philadelphia, and her mother was an opera singer. Hmm. Well, it jumps out swinging with big shakes in the trumpets, and Barcini comes in with a nice line with an upward sliding pitches, 
on the lyrics. Uh, she swings nicely with great enunciation. There are great backing lines in each section, and I like how they are panned. Saxes to the left, trumpets center, trombones to the right. That kind of weaves them around the centered vocals. It's such a happy tune for a sad subject. Mm. Uh, James Zoller gets a bubbly trumpet solo. There's a little transition to a Barry Sax solo from Andrew Gustoskus with speedy lines. It gets a lifting modulation to bring Barcini back, and the band really whips it up to the ending with a great arrangement. Let's check out uh, the ending of the tune to get a feel for this. Exciting. All right, track two, All of Me, Gerald Marks and Seymour Simons. It was first recorded by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra in 1931. This features Tahira Clayton, originally from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Another great swinging full band intro. Clayton has good phrasing and playful pitches through the melody. The trumpets really blast out a section into a trombone solo from Robert Edwards. He makes it really melodic with interesting articulated rising triplets, some high cries, and fun falling pitches. A lifting modulation gets Clayton soaring higher on her return, really belting it out to a big ending. It's an energetic performance and an exciting arrangement. Track three, Social Call, to tune by Gigi Grice and John Hendricks, first recorded and released by the Art Farmer Quintet featuring Gigi Grice, 1955. This features Nicole Zoraitis, who grew up in Connecticut, also played trombone and studied classical voice at New York University, and started out singing opera professionally before switching over to jazz. Uh, it's a medium tempo with brushed drums, a half-note bass bounce, and muted trumpets. Zoraitis has a very warm voice with a great sense of pitch. I like the way she sings out the final line. Chris Lewis gets a tenor sax solo, and then Jason Jackson on trombone, both swinging easily. Uh, Zoraitis is back on the bridge to take it to the end, and the band arrangement is great at the end with soft sax figures and final trumpet and trombone stabs. Let's check out a little bit of that ending. But if you should try to Yeah, I really wonder what her opera voice sounds like because this sounds like a total jazz <laughs> yeah, voice to me. You know? yeah. Interesting. All right, track four, another tune everyone knows, Summertime. George and Ira Gershwin, of course, 
from the 1935 opera Porgy and Bess. This features Brianna Thomas, born and raised in Peoria, Illinois, where she made her singing debut at the age of six. She's the daughter of drummer and vocalist Charlie Thomas. Uh, the drums kick it in with quite an original introduction. I hear a little muted wah on a trumpet there. That tells of things to come. Thomas has the perfect voice for this song with subtle dynamics, bluesy vocalizations, and a quivering vibrato. The slow tempo really lets her work it. Uh, Andrew Gould gets an alto sax solo with slinky and searing lines. And I didn't know how much more Thomas would be able to ring out of this tune, but she's got a lot left. I just want to hear a little sample of this because it's so powerful. chills and the old uh, hair standing up on the back of the neck yeah i thought the band gave that a bluesy kind of feel too you know? yeah really nice well the plunger mute is back for the trumpet on the melody and the notes don't say who it is uh but that's a part i'd love to play it sounds like a lot of fun uh, it comes down really soft and rubato for thomas to take it to a final wail with screaming trumpets and the plunger getting some last rips it's a very powerful performance from both vocalist and the band Track five is You Turn the Tables on Me. Uh, Lewis Alter and Sidney D. Mitchell. It's a popular song written for the 1936 film Sing Baby Sing. And this features Chanel Johns from Hartford, Connecticut. It's a great swinging full band intro with a little break for the first vocal phrase. Johns has a distinctive voice tone. She sounds joyful and has little Ella Fitzgerald-like ornaments inner lines. Uh, the full band swings hard into a trumpet solo from Noah Halpern with nice tone and some fun high shakes and a final double time lick. John's is back and keeps the energy high right to the end as the arrangement builds up. A really classy singer here. Track six, What a Difference a Day Made. Uh, Maria Grever and Stanley Adams. It's a popular song originally written in Spanish as we found out. We heard hmm. uh, not too long ago. This was uh, originally a Mexican songwriter uh, with the title Cuando Vuelva a Tu Lado. Uh, the English version was popularized by Dinah Washington. This features Alita Moses from Philadelphia. She's performed with the Lincoln Center Orchestra for a big band holidays performance. A really fun arrangement for this one with a samba feel. I love how the legato flute lines are set against the staccato brass in the intro, and I like Moses's relaxed phrasing over the busy band rhythms. Uh, let's just check out the start of this tune. What a difference a day made. 24 little hours Brought the sun and the flowers Where they used to be raised. She sounds all smooth and relaxed And there's all this stuff burbling and percolating underneath Yeah, it's pretty uh, nice contrast there hmm. 
The arrangement makes the most of the fluttering flutes. Uh, Sam Hoyt gets a trumpet solo with a lot of rhythmic variety in his lines and great melodic ideas. Andrew Gutoskis gets a berry solo with some speedy triplet lines. It modulates up for an enthusiastic ending when Moses returns, finishing with fun falling final horn lines. Track 7, Blame It On My Youth, Oscar Levant and Edward Heyman, 1934. Uh, the Dorsey Brothers Orchestra recorded it. This features Charles Turner, the only male vocalist from California, a lush rubato ballad intro with soft horn lines, including flute. It comes into tempo with Turner's vocals. He's got an interesting voice, soft warm in the lower register, but getting up high easily. Jeb Patton gets a piano solo with a delicate touch and ringing notes, and Turner returns to take it to the end where he gets some space for his voice to float on its own before the soft horn lines and upward trickles of Patton finish it up. Track 8, Born to be Blue, by Mel Torme and Robert Wells. This was first released by Mel Torme with Sonny Burke and his orchestra in 1946. This features Lucy Yegiazarian, who grew up in post-Soviet Armenia, uh, immigrating to the U.S. in 2002. This one starts with a super bouncy 6-8 band arrangement that settles into a slow 4 for Yegiazarian's smoky vocals, but they bring back the 6-4 for a little interjection, which makes it really interesting. Let's check out uh, just the beginning of this to see how that works. Some folks were meant to live in clover a chosen few and clover being green is something I've never seen cause I was born to be blue very cool uh, that coming back of the rhythm. Well, fabulous voice and phrasing, nice slinky sax backing lines and thick trombones. They give it a Latin feel change up on the bridge that really picks up the mood. There's a lot of nuance in her voice and great vibrato use. It returns to the slow 4-4 four, four for the final A section, but then they kick it up into the 6-8 for a full band build up into screaming trumpets and then a trombone solo from Robert Edwards with speedy slide work. Chris Lewis follows with the swinging tenor sax solo and Patton wraps up the solos on piano. Great band backing lines with a lot of variety and the berry sax sticking out over in the left channel. Yegazarian is back on the bridge to take it to the end with some bluesy feel. The trombones have some fun ending notes under held out high trumpets. A really captivating singer. Track 9, So Many Stars, featuring Sirentip, who has both Thai and Swedish heritage. This is a tune written by Alan Bergman, Marilyn Bergman, and Sergio Mendes. So it's from Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66, a famous oh. recording, right? So it's a lush intro, starting with flute, swelling horn lines. I think you hear some bass clarinet in there. Serentip takes the easy flowing vocals with relaxed phrasing and a hint of R&B feel. The horn arrangements stay lush, and Robert Edwards gets a well-constructed trombone solo with playful articulation. When Serentip comes back with the vocals, I like the volley of notes starting with trombones under the which one to choose lyrics that move from left to right through the instruments. Nice little arranging touch. It ends with a really thick chord of winds over a softly throbbing bass with piano trickles. 
Track 10, All or Nothing at All, by Arthur Altman and Jack Lawrence. First released by Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra, 1939. This features uh, Martina da Silva, who's originally from New York, uh, born to a Brazilian father and American mother, and she completed her undergraduate degree at the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music, and we know her pretty well from recordings with Stephen Feifke. A big full band intro with shimmering sax lines into the familiar staccato backing figures of the tune. De Silva comes in warm and smoky in her lower register. She has such great vocal control. Nice berry sax doodles under the vocal on the A section repeat. The rhythmic feel evolves interestingly through the tune. The first part of the A section is kind of straight, but picks up more of a swing in the second half, and then it works up to a driving swing on the major B section with huge horn stabs. When De Silva gets to the end, you're ready for her to belt it out, but it gets soft instead with a harmonic diversion into a detour with little piano figures and band arrangement buildup. Christopher McBride emerges with an energy-charged boppy alto sax solo with some really high reaches. He's really on fire, and De Silva is back on the bridge, and now she'll get a dramatic ending, but she sets it down easy over swelling trombones and muted trumpets. And the final track, 11, I'm Just a Lucky So-and-So, Duke Ellington and Mac David. It's first released by Duke Ellington and his orchestra, 1946. This features Hannah Gill uh, from the eastern shore of Maryland, and her debut jazz album, Everybody Loves a Lover, comes out this month. So Mm. check that out if you like this voice. An intro with loping bass and sax figures and huge trumpet blasts, and Gill sings it with a sassy bluesiness. I really liked this, so let's just check out the beginning. you go for the trumpet with the wah mute like oh yeah well, that's really cool. it was pretty fantastic i wanted to highlight the vocalists right anyway this tune wraps it up so it's a very classy recording fabulous young vocalists and great arranging jonah kuchi has kept the spirit of the original jazz standards but you can find inventiveness all through the arrangements the whole band is charged up and swings and screams with enthusiasm There are enough lush moments with bass, clarinet, flutes, and mutes to balance out the big blasts, and a variety of instrumental soloists sprinkled in, Robert Edwards getting the biggest workout with lots of trombone solos, who is, by the way, the husband of Vanessa Perea, another great (laughs) young vocalist who we heard in episode just a few weeks ago. So great arranging from Jonokuchi, and I can't wait to hear some more. Yeah, I thought you could have really um, sampled every track on this album because they're all different, (laughs) you know, because there's a different vocalist on each track. So you really really have to hear the whole thing, I I think, for uh, listeners out there. Yeah, it's a straightforward, feel-good swinging album uh, with some brassy blasts and energetic vocals really all the way through and great arranging, too. It's really appealing right away. I almost felt like the vocalist should have had the headline, but, you know, John Acucci, of course, it's his band. He's, right. you know, it's it's his album. But I still feel like, you know, the vocalist when the vocalist is on the record, they're kind of the main, 
the main focus. Anyway, we get we get to hear him solo a lot too, and to good effect. I mentioned the wah trumpet solo at the very end on uh, track eleven. I'm just a lucky so and so. Right. Yeah. I think he's on uh, What a Difference a Day Makes, too. He has a good... Um, this is also a suave uh, bar- baritone sax solo in that track, too, What a Difference mm-hmm. a Day Makes. So I liked hearing that as well. Um, <laughs> as a non-jazz listener, mostly... I mean, I listen to jazz, but I don't, I'm not as familiar with it as most. I always love to hear the words to all of these songs, because I don't know them. I usually know them as instrumentals, right, you know? Right, So I, was, I thought this was really cool, and I was kind of engaged also by that. It was a little bit of an education for me, too. Um, the different vocal timbres of each singer really keeps the ear engaged, too. I thought it was a nice idea to have them, so many different vocalists on the album. All right, and one more, <laughs> ending up the Big Band Bonanza. And this is Grooveyard by the John LaBarbera Big Band. It's on Origin Records, came out August 25th. John LaBarbera, now 77 years old, is a trumpeter, composer, and arranger, uh, known for his work in the Buddy Rich and Buddy DeFranco's Glenn Miller Band in the 60s and 70s. In the 80s and 90s, he worked mainly as a composer and arranger. He made a lot of scores for college and high school big bands and did commissions for movies and television and commercials. And his uh, On the Wild Side recording was nominated for Best Large Jazz Ensemble Grammy Award in 2004. In the area of jazz education, he directed jazz ensembles at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York from 1988 to 1991. And then he was on the Jazz Studies program faculty at the University of Louisville. Now, if you played in a high school or university big band in the 80s or that time, you've surely played uh, many of his compositions and arrangements. Uh, I know I did. And uh, I remember one great one. Everyone loved uh, the Tiger of San Pedro (laughs) that he originally wrote for trombonist Bill Watros. That was a really fun one to play. Now, he and his brothers, uh, Pat on sax and Joe on drums, who also play on this recording, were big names when I was coming up in high school and university bands in upstate New York, and because they're all from Western New York. And as a matter of fact, I think I think it was Jim, could have been Pat, but they were adjudicators at um, music competitions that I played in, and you would often get a cassette tape back of the performance oh, cool. with the judge commenting on it. I remember listening. can't remember which of the LaBarber brothers it was, but, you know, back 35 years ago. <laughs> so I remember listening to those comments. And, uh, well, here we are 35 years later, and I'm going to talk about your recording. <laughs> so, how's that for irony? <laughs> anyway, in the John LaBarber big band, John LaBarber is the leader, conductor, and arranger. In the sax section, we've got Steve Wilson, Erica von Kleist on alto saxes. Wilson's the lead, and they both double on flute. Tenor sax, Pat LaBarbera, Sam Sadogorski on tenor and clarinet. And LaBarbera also plays soprano on this recording. Andy Gutoskis, baritone sax and bass clarinet. And John Ruiz on clarinet on track six. Trumpet, John Chudoba on the lead trumpet. Also, Brian Pareshi lead on tracks seven and nine brandon lee on trumpet and clay jenkins as well trombones ryan keberly who we hear quite a bit on the podcast we heard his uh, brazilian recording most recently on lead trombone mike davis also trombone and lead on track nine sarah giacovino david taylor on bass trombone the rhythm section is brandon coleman on guitar renee rosness on piano 
and keyboards, Rufus Reed on acoustic bass, Frank Gravis on electric bass, Kiko Sebrian on percussion, and Jola Barber on drums. So we'll start out with the title track, Grooveyard, a tune by Carl Perkins. No, not the one with the blue suede shoes. (laughs) Not that guy. But the L.A.-based jazz pianist uh, who worked with Curtis Count's quintet uh, that also featured Harold Land and Jack Sheldon. Now, the first recording of this tune was actually by Harold Land in 1958. Harold in the land of jazz. Well, this gets off to a great start with brass blasts, bluesy melody licks in Coleman's guitar with the saxes and low bass pulses thickened by bass trombone you can hear in the right channel. Then loping bass and piano chords set up Pat LaBarba's tenor and Coleman to take the melody. Let's check out how this tune gets going. feels good yeah all right the other saxes join in and the brass get flowing backing lines the intro brass blasts idea return for build up into a solo for coleman's guitar he's super relaxed and flowing with nice bluesy double stops nicely arranged backing lines and the saxes swell in and out pat labarbera follows keeping that relaxed feel but getting some edgier tone on his licks a really swinging full band arrangement builds it up to the intro idea over low blasts and into some cool different directions you anticipate a big screaming ending but it settles into some more sax and guitar exchanges over soft horn backing. Track two, My New Summer Samba. This is an original by John LaBarbera, a samba with a throbbing electric bass pulse from Frank Gravis and Renee Rosen switching to electric piano. The rhythm section gets a 16-measure intro. The horns come in on the last measure to a quick pause to set up the melody. Uh, Sounds like soprano sax and trombone, And then we get flute lines on the next section mixed in. A muscular trombone sectional into full band fun with trumpet blasts sets up Pat LaBarber for a soprano sax solo with snaking lines. Backing lines from the saxes on the left and bones on the right trade off. Trumpets give it a climax. And then hi-hat and bass drum take it into a really fun arranged section of soprano sax, trombone, and I think flute too over berry sax and bass figures. The band builds up to hits over hi-hat to get Ryan Keeberly started on a trombone solo. He really blows it out with great tone and ideas. It works into a full band arrangement of powerful brass lines and sax lines escaping underneath. Super screaming lead trumpet from John Chidoba. Some drum fills settle it back into the melody arrangement of the three instruments and then the thick trombones into the full band. There's a great undulating line that gets passed around from the electric piano to the saxes rising to a final scary screaming chord. Track three for Eola. This is a Dave Brubeck tune. It's a ballad that he wrote for his wife and the title track of his 1984 recording. Pat LaBarbera on soprano sax starts it out over just the piano of Rene Rosnes. It's rubato and pretty. Rosnes gets into a waltz feel with some rhythmic chords, joined by acoustic bass and brush drums, and she gets to work up a little piano section. 
Then John LaBarbera has arranged a nice little section of flute and bass clarinet before Pat returns on soprano with more melody. Soft backing woodwind and muted brass lines flow in, and a full band arrangement works up with more aggressive drums driving it along. Rosnitz gets an improvised piano solo, nice flowing lines and climbing chords backed by the flute and bass clarinet lines. Pat has a soprano solo backed by some soft muted horn lines. The whole band swings out with full bore trumpets before it comes down softly with just the rhythm section and Rossness piano bringing back the soprano sax and then the whole band for some joyous sounds into Rufus Reed's descending bass lines and lush woodwinds to end it with a few final soprano flurries. Track four, Thanks Hank, another John LaBarbera original, and that would be Hank, as in Henry Mancini, and oh. you'll recognize the cool Mancini stylings if you know his music. It starts with a huge horn blast into Rufus Reed walking the bass over light hi-hat. It's got a bluesy minor melody worked by tenor sax and guitar in unison. Let's check out just a little bit of this once it gets going. Cool stop time breaks there, and then huge trumpet scream interjections as it builds up and the horns swing. Rosnes gets a piano solo first. She has some cool rhythmic licks, some double time running lines, and punchy chords. The band works up a series of falling blasts to bring in a tenor sax solo from Sam Sadagursky, who gets slinkier running lines as he goes on, and the horns back him. A nicely arranged full band swinging arrangement builds up, with each section doing its thing into a powerful climax. Rosnes gets some cute dissonant staccato piano chords and the saxon guitar melody returns punctuated by big tight blasts gets a really playful ending with flute and soft horn lines over descending bass and the hi-hat ticking to a pause before the final falling blast in fine mancini fashion there track five is trainsome t-r-a-n-e the Cold Train by John LaBarber as well. The rhythm section starts it out for 24 measures with some piano improvisations from Rosnes. Interesting modal harmonies to work through on this tune. The winds have a cool arrangement over stop time rhythms with big ominous open chords in the trombones. It gets swinging more with all sections working up to a climax. Pat LaBarber gets an inspired tenor sax solo with a variety of horn backing lines cheering him along. And Rosnes has an exciting solo on piano, too. The horns work behind her into a full band, powerful arrangement with trumpets, pushing higher and higher. Pat LaBarber gets some more tenor to an unexpected pause. The horns pick it up into a final exchange with the sax for a full ending. Track 6, Choro para Tiago, another John LaBarbera original. And time for some Caribbean clarinet fun. This is a fun track. One reason Sam Sadagursky do the honors on clarinets with the melody coming right in between band blasts. Frank Gravis's electric bass propels this one along. And if you know your Dizzy Gillespie, you might catch hints to 
his and then she stopped and salt peanuts in here uh, hmm. it's fun and infectious with the harmonized clarinet melody uh, there's some fun trading of trombone and trumpet sections over the drums as well the clarinets each get bubbly solos nice backing lines in the bones and the whole band gets to work to a big happy finish with a little minor twist and fun breaks for the clarinets Track seven is Kay's Delight, also a La Barbara original. This has a cool rhythm section opening with some modal piano from Rosness. A trumpeter Brandon Lee gets featured on the melody that recalls a bit of Horace Silver's Nika's Dream <laughs> to me. Hmm. Uh, it's got a nicely subdivided Latin beat from Joe La Barbara's drums and breaks into a grooving swing for the full band on the bridge. The horns work those modal licks we heard from Rosness at the beginning and it suddenly cuts to solo piano and then horn blasts to bring in Lee's solo. He navigates the rhythmic field change-ups choosing melodic paths nicely through the chords. Sam Sadagurski gets a tenor solo too. The full band arrangement is cool with swinging saxes, brass stabs, and then the trumpets taking the top before Lee and Sadagurski get some more solo exchanges and a little piano too in the ending arrangement. Track eight, the mandatory blues. I guess every album needs one. Also a La Barbara original. It's a funny title. <laughs> This has really raucous intro with screaming trumpets over moving trombone and sax lines that build up to a clean two-measure break. Rufus Reed's bass picks up into the 12-bar blues melody arranged for flute, berry sax, muted trumpet, and piano. It's kind of cute. Let's check this one out at the beginning. Orchestration there, yeah. great arranging. Yeah, we'll go around. Is that a bass saxophone in the bottom? Oh, I think it's just Barry there. Yeah. Barry sax, sorry, that's what I meant. Yep. Yeah. All right, yeah. uh, they go around again there with the more horns hits building up. There's a transition section into the intro, bringing in Steve Wilson for an alto sax solo. He's got a unique pleading tone and continues on with interjecting powerful horn sections. Clay Jenkins is next on trumpet, relaxed phrases and puckish figures. The whole band gets a big arrangement with interval lines that really whip it up. And the sax section then gets to work the melody once and then back to the original flute, berry and muted trumpet arrangement for a round. It gets an outro like the intro into a final blast. Track nine, Sweetness. This is a tune by Curtis Fuller off from his 2011 The Story of Kathy and Me that was dedicated to his wife, who I believe passed away from cancer. This is a really happy sounding tune with a great arrangement. It sounds like one trumpet, one trombone, and a tenor sax together on the main phrases with answers and hits from the rest of the band. The rhythm section sits out on the horn lines and then accents the answers and gets a medium swing going on the rest of the phrases. Andy Gutowskis gets a berry sax solo, showing off a lot of agility with speedy double-time phrases. The whole band swings hard on a section to bring in Michael Davis on trombone solo with some sassy slide work and bendy notes. The whole trombone section gets a really nice arrangement to swing through, and the trumpets get some screaming, and Davis has more to say before they get back to the melody for another round and a big finish with yet more soaring trombone on the final notes. 
And we're going to end up the recording. Track 10, Keiko's Birthday March. This is an Elvin Jones tune from his 1968 album, Putting It Together, that featured Joe Farrell on sax and flute. Well, Joe LaBarbera gets to march it in with a long drum intro. The minor melody has got cool syncopated horn stabs that contrast with longer swinging lines. The drums fill all around and get solo spots. The band is really on fire when things get whipping along. Pat LaBarbera has some tenor sax soloing with just Joe's drums underneath and also giving some exchanges with him before the rest of the rhythm section joins in and the band gets backing lines into a section that transitions to a trumpet solo from Clay Jenkins. He gets himself into some topsy-turvy figures with some bluesy ideas as well. Full band stabs over the drums lead to a longer drum solo. There's more full band antics before a newly arranged section of horn figures and interjections back into the hard swinging melody section and a final drum break before the horns end it. So it's a really exciting big band recording with a lot of energy. John LaBarbera knows how to arrange horn sections that really swing and shout out. I'm sure that was a requirement for the Buddy Rich big band, but there's also a lot of great subtle things in the arrangements as well with woodwind tone colors of flute and clarinet and muted brass to enjoy as well. His original compositions stick in your ear and he digs deep into the catalog of originals by other jazz musicians with tunes we haven't heard in a while from Carl Perkins, Dave Brubeck, Curtis Fuller, and Elvin Jones. With his brothers all here, the family still going strong together, exciting solos all around, and top players in the band, including Rufus Reed, Ryan Keeberly, and Renee Rosness. Big band fans don't want to miss this one. Yeah, there's a great ensemble playing variety of styles. Let me just uh, yeah. single out a few... Uh... Uh, things that I really liked on this, uh, the piano playing on track three for Eola and uh, track four, Thanks Hank. Great sound, great sounding piano on that, really classy playing, a beautiful sound as well. Uh, let's see, there's a wind section playing harmony in the left channel of for Eola that I really liked. I really liked the, the arranging there. And uh, there's also kind of a, on some tracks, there's a goofy sense of humor too, which I really like. They don't mm. take themselves too seriously. Like Mandatory Blues is one. Right. And uh, of course, Choro Paratiago also. This <laughs> is kind of a <laughs> really fun track. Um, like you said, I wanted to say this a different way. There's a reaching back into the past for some of the uh, jazz idioms and characterizations that have that you don't really hear enough of today. And I was thinking of Henry Mancini would be a good example right. of that. He's... I remember his music was more was almost ubiquitous because we used to have movies and he would right. score movies yeah. and things when we were younger. Now you just don't hear anything like that anymore. Right. So it's kind of nice to hear it here. Um, certainly put a smile on my face and uh, for all the adults out there, uh, it's upbeat and enjoyable album. Right. So there you have it. A full program of concertos and then big band. Yeah. So it's a big, uh, big program. And it's, I think it was a long one, too. So it turns out to have been just as long as the works we were talking about. Been, Boy, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of music to listen to on this one, too. So that'll be fun. Yeah. I think. Check out all these recordings. I think yeah. they're all uh, really exciting this week. I hope we pick some samples that caught your ears so you'll want to go yeah. and kind of stream them. Yeah. That's the whole point, right? Or buy them. I would buy them. If yeah. <laughs> So uh, we don't have a preview for our next episode because we're actually going to record, hopefully, the guest episode with uh, Same Difference same guys, difference, yeah. which will come out the week after. So uh, we'll yeah, but we're, we're probably going to do like next week would be like another 
episode of six albums, and then right. they'd come out the week after that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about in the next episode, <laughs> we, we don't know yet. I have an idea, but I haven't really figured it out. There's a yet. lot of new, great new stuff to choose from. So, yeah. uh, but we'll put up a playlist for that not too long after this episode gets published. So you can check that out on Deezer or find a link to it on our Facebook page. It'll probably go up before this episode <laughs> goes up, <laughs> you know, because we're, we're a little early today, too. Yeah. So that's why we don't have the uh, the list yet. Anyway, we've gone on long enough this episode, so thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Be sure to check out the Same Difference podcast. There's a link to it at the end of the description, and you'll hear their little promo when we sign off here. Any final words, Mike? Yeah, if you thought this um, podcast wasn't long enough, listen to it again, or go back <laughs> and listen to some of our other ones. Yeah, we're always yeah. there. We have uh, over 100 episodes now. You can, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can enjoy all kinds of time with us. Especially those interview episodes, they haven't been listened to enough. So yeah, yeah, those are those are great. Those yeah, yeah, I really like those. All right, well, we're looking forward to getting together with the same difference guys, and we'll be back with one more regular episode, episode one hundred and thirty-two next week. Before, before, before that, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, yeah, we'll see. And then after that, we'll be going off launching into the uh, autumn releases all the yeah. way up to Christmas. There you go. Yeah, coming <laughs> soon. For Christmas Can you believe music it? Soon. Yeah. You can start looking for Christmas music. They they start coming out yeah. around October. So keep listening, and we'll see you again next time for episode one hundred and thirty-two. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.